0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Lowdown Society. Today, we're going to venture into the hard rock world, and we're going to venture a little bit out of uh, what I normally do for these podcasts. Uh, Normally, I tend to interview people who play for fairly successful singers where most of us might not know the excellent bass player behind the famous singer. And that was sort of my original idea for the Lowdown Society originally, uh, but again, this week is a big break from that because we have a somewhat of a base celebrity on the podcast. Uh, he's played for many platinum selling rock bands, including White Snake, Dio, Ingvar Malmsteen, Quiet Riot, and Ozzy Osbourne. And also, he's been on many interviews, he's had many uh I guess many versions of his story as a rock star has been told. But I was very curious about, obviously, about his more bass-specific achievements and bass nerd stuff, as always on this podcast. So hopefully on this podcast, you'll get to see another side of Rudy Sarzo. Rudy was kind enough to meet me at... PA Rehearsal Studios in Reseda, California. We had booked the room for an hour and a half interview, and as you guys can tell, we went way over time. Hopefully, you guys will find all that time well invested. I sure did. We had a great time and laughed a lot. So, here it is, Mr. Rudy Sarzo.
1: I sure I brought it. I, I had no idea. I, well,
0: I brought something else. I we just, can we can yap about it. Yeah, so. we, yapping is good. <laughs> It'll take you a little more level. Okay, check. Check, one, two. Check. Yeah. yeah. Unless we start screaming and yelling and laughing, we should. Yeah, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, we'll be official right away then, even though we're just hanging. Yeah. I don't like to. We're officially hanging. We're officially hanging. Yeah. Uh, We're in Reseda in the Valley in L.A., and uh, both me and the guest today live in Woodland Hills. Yes.
1: In the hills.
0: In the hills. And, yeah. I, and I remember. It's for
1: people that cannot afford Beverly Hills.
0: Yes. You go to Woodland Hills. That's right.
1: Which is like Beverly Hills, but more with more wood.
0: Yes. And I tell everyone, it's the hottest place in L.A. So everyone's like, why did you move to the hottest place in L.A.? I go, because without going on a freeway, yeah, I can go straight over the hill to Malibu and lose yeah. 40 degrees. Yeah. On I,
1: li- I, I live right on top, right off Mulholland on yeah. top. Yeah. So I get the breeze from Malibu. Yeah. beautiful. Sometimes I get the farts from all the coyotes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely get the noise. All you hear
0: where you live is coyotes and motorcycles. Coyote, I
1: know, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, we're here at PA Rehearsal Studios in Reseda with Rudy Sarzo. Welcome, man. Hey, Victor. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I just told Rudy before we turned this recorder on that some bass players are very humble, soft-spoken, shy people, quite frankly. I've had a few episodes where I had to interview somebody shy. And Rudy is a longtime pro of interviews, podcasts, and he is a radio host. So instead I'm a of radio host. instead of starting at the beginning with yes. where you're from and all that crap, let's yeah. start now. But tell, you tell know what about, tell us about your radio show.
1: My radio show is called Six Degrees of SARS. As a matter of fact, my 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 major in college was I had a I had a major in music and then I started playing professionally, which meant that I really could not have too many hours. In, in college, mm-hmm. because I was busy already, you know, playing the bars in, in Miami Beach, you know, back in the early 70s. So I turned my major into a minor, and then my major became mass communication, which was radio, uh, television, and motion picture producing and directing. So I always had, you know, an inkling towards radio because I, f- you know, it, it's just that personal thing. You know, it's like when you play music, you're talking, you're you're relating to audiences. Yes, you know, and with the radio, it's the same thing. You know, there's an audience out there listening, partici- participating in this.
0: I always tell people uh, when I discuss practicing and all these guys on YouTube spending all this time playing music in, in solitaire by themselves. Mm. I said my reason for music. It's because I think that you can put an equal sign between music, the word music, mm. and the word communication. Oh, absolutely. Because it's the minute I get in a room with another mm. musician, mm. I feel way more inclined to yes. make music than yeah. I ever do when I sit by myself. Or to talk. Or to talk,
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's the common denominator. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the, the, the icebreaker because you either are a musician or both. A fan and a musician, so you can talk about music to anybody, even if they don't play an instrument.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, on your radio show, what 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 type of guests do you have, and what what is what I is have? Yeah,
1: it's it's uh, it's on Sundays at four p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and it's on of Rock Radio. So we mostly have, I would say, mostly because I've had some comedians and uh, and actresses. On the show but they're all they're all rock and roll connected mm-hmm. so you know rock and roll or music in general it doesn't have to be heavy metal rock and roll or anything like that you know you just have to be a musician yeah you know
0: genre is always second you know i uh a lot of people you know a lot of people that aren't musicians i don't know you i'm sure you've been pegged into this because you've done so many high profile hard rock gigs and mm-hmm. you have long hair they mm-hmm. think oh you're a heavy metal musician mm-hmm. and you think no i'm just a musician i'm just a
1: musician yeah right. uh my first heavy metal band was the uh the the Randy Rhodes version of Choir Riot back in the late 70s and then that turned into uh the Aussie you know gig Gig or I hate to use the word gig. Gig is so, so a, eh. Yeah,
2: it's like work.
1: Yeah, it's like work. Yeah. No, I mean it was it was it was an experience. It was you know the beyond and you know it was it was a life changing uh, part of my life um, being in the Aussie band for so many reasons. But um, yeah, so I, I I you know I grew up in Miami and back in the day we had top forty. We didn't have tribute bands. You know you play whatever was on the radio from Johnny Cash to Paul Anka, You Having My Baby, to (laughs) Janis Joplin, Deep Purple, whatever, you know, top 40, you know. So it was very diverse. A lot of R&B, especially being in in Miami, there was a huge not only R&B, but also reggae scene, you know. So you have to be diversified. You have to have all the tools, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, right-hand technique and, and, and music, you know, harmony, theory knowledge
0: so speaking of reggae and uh, other types of music Mm -hmm. you moved from cuba to the states how old were you when you moved your family Uh,
1: i was almost 11 i was like a couple of months shy of 11 and uh i grew up with basically what is now called uh latin jazz Mm -hmm. and we just used to call it you know Cuban music, you know, whatever it was, you know, it was just music, (laughs) you know, we didn't have categories, you know, so I I grew up with that, and it's funny because, you know, after all these years, and now that there's so many resources uh, on social media, YouTube, and so on, uh, that you can actually get an education, you know, online, and that's what I do every day, I just go to YouTube, and and there's certain to-go channels that I go to. And um, I just you know I expand my my knowledge, you know, and either right hand technique, which I'm working on a few new ones, and also the uh, so things things that I never really apply when I when I'm on tour because it's not, you know, there's double thumping on a on a classic rock, you know, band yeah. just yeah. doesn't work, yeah. but it's something that that I'm I must master that yeah. you know. And um, which which is a little bit tough because if you're if you're practicing techniques that you never get to use live, it's it's tough. So so I'm I'm finding I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for situations where locally, not even playing in front of people, just playing in front of some friends to jam to be able to expand on on the uh, on, on different right hand techniques that I'm that, that I that I've been practicing.
0: So since we're on that topic, you said there's a few YouTube channels or your go-to's. Like, yeah. What 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 are some of the YouTube channels that, that well, inspire you right now?
1: Yeah, the first one once I started really going on that path um, about f- a few years ago, maybe 3 4 years ago, was the early version of Scott Divine, okay? Everything based, uh, yep, yep. you know, Scott Divine based. You know, he's tremendous, you yep. know. And uh, then after that, uh, Rick Beato. Uh-huh. That was another great one. Uh, Jens Larson,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and a few. I mean, I have them all on my on my YouTube list, you know, because yeah. I'm always jumping around. It depends on what I'm looking for,
2: yeah,
1: you know. And there, there's an, uh, another one that I get uh, emails. It's called Jazz Jazz Advice. Ah. it's really it's jazz centric, but see, it's not about the bass. Uh, I would say Scott Divine is the one that I go to mostly for right hand techniques. About the bass, yeah. The the everything else is 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 harmony and theory. So yeah. I usually yeah. go to, uh, uh Reed, Sax, yeah, Treble Clef. Yep. You know,
0: that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's that's good advice, I think, for people that are listening again. Because uh, the cool thing about bass players that haven't done one gig their entire life that have jumped around a bunch, the cool thing is like. Like we discussed earlier, that it's about music. Mm-hmm. And genre I- is really never, never on the forefront. Music always mm-hmm. is. And the reason I asked you about where you, uh, what age you were when you came to mm-hmm. the stage from Cuba is do you have memories from before age 11 of music in Cuba grabbing a hold of your soul, sort yeah. of as a preteen, as a child?
1: Yeah, I, and, and it's always been in my head, but yeah. I just left it alone because it's kind of like, Okay, this is not what I'm doing now. I'm doing this other thing, which yeah. is rock and roll, you know, R&B, yeah. blues, yeah. bass, rock and roll. And I went on that path that led me to heavy metal. And, and you know, heavy metal back in the 80s was completely different from heavy metal today, especially the Scandinavian metal, you know, yeah. death yeah. metal and, yeah. and all that stuff. So, so you know, you, yeah, we were considered heavy metal quiet riot mm-hmm. bang your head stuff like that that is just and rock the and roll noise. to us now yeah exactly yeah. it's yeah. probably no actually it's adult contemporary <laughs> it that's great it is it is I'm, i i rented a car last last week and uh, uh and and i'm going through like you know looking for channels and adult contemporary was the rock station <laughs> Everything was urban and rap. you know.
0: Well, I, I always, you know, I, I see funny memes and people sort of pondering that in retirement homes yeah. in 10 years are yeah. going to be just a bunch of people listening to like Bark at the Moon and, yeah. and like Tokyo Tapes. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And that's, you know. Oh, yeah. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I, I, I don't know how great that is, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I just, you know, it's just so hard to see. <laughs> for somebody like me who think of my grandparents that are both gone now but or all mm. four of them gone but mm. i just think of well what if i went to visit them and they were <laughs> you know and they were just like you know listening to bang your head or something Yeah, you know? it's such a great yeah. such a great thought that that's what's happening now the interesting thing i thought because uh, i had to go uh, to your Wikipedia page before meeting you. Not because I wasn't familiar with you, because I've grown on, up on a lot of the bands. There's a
1: in. few bits of misinformation in there. So it's good that <laughs> Well, you know Wikipedia, you know. Yeah,
0: but I read that you were supposed to go see Van Halen's show. It didn't happen. You saw Choir Riot, and you were really inspired by what yeah. you saw, and you met them afterwards. Yeah. But then you flew back to the East Coast to do covers with your brother. Yes, I did. And they gave you a call to come back yes. out an audition. Yes, I'm exactly. I'm sure you've talked about that with other people, but it seems like a really life changing moment.
1: It's a, 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 yeah, you know, one little thing leads to another. Uh, yeah, meeting Kevin DeBross. Matter of fact, I, I have a book. Uh-huh. Since we're plugging the radio oh, show, that's might as well plug, plug the book, away, sir. Uh, it's called uh, Off the Rails, mm-hmm. and basically, I wrote it to ask the number one, uh, to answer the number one question I get asked mm-hmm. when I travel around the world, which is, "What was it like to play with Randy Rhodes?" Mm-hmm. You know, so I wrote the book to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's in, I believe, chapter two that deals with me actually starting in, in LA, you know, and meeting, uh, actually watching quiet riot perform for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, at, at a place called the starwood that mm-hmm. it's no longer there. There's like a Seven Eleven or, or yeah. something in there. Now it was in, 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 uh, in West Hollywood. And, um, that was kind of like the teen hangout. Like, if you couldn't get into the, into the whiskey, you just walked down half a mile to, to the Starwood. And, and I saw Quiet Riot for the first time, and I, I was really impressed by their presentation because at the time, I had been playing clubs for over 10 years, and i seen all sorts of club bands. i seen the club bands that you could, you could tell, oh, yeah, these guys are going somewhere because their, their presentation was above the club level. You know they were they were shooting for the arenas. Mm-hmm. You know, and Quiet Riot was definitely one of those. You know, and they really projected a lot. And um, so I I I told Kevin. You know, they get off the stage, and I just happened to bump into him as we were walking around, and I told him just because you know, and I still do when I see somebody really uh, giving the the uh, the effort. You can tell. You can tell the people who are actually like working on it, and struggling, and getting it. You know, get, working towards getting it right to getting to that next level. And 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 I, and I, so when I saw Kevin, I said, "Hey, listen, I, you guys are on the right track, man. You know, just keep doing what you're doing. But blah, 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 whatever, you know, I was just
0: Pos- because, positive. You were just, yeah, uh, positive feedback, affirmation.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, feedback, because you know we we all need that sometimes. Especially when when a band's starting out, you're just banging your head against the wall, you know, and you're trying things. But if people don't give you feedback like they do now on social media.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's brave behind their keyboard, right? That's (laughs) right.
1: (laughs) <laughs> and you know, but but back then there was no such thing, you know. And uh, so I just I, I just went ahead and told him, you know, what what how, how great it was that that I thought that the band, you know, was was in the right direction and and so on. So I left town, went over to New Jersey to uh, play with my brother in a in a lounge band, uh, you know, just to get some more money to come back to L.A. and continue, you know, because. Well, living in West Hollywood, like I was, I, 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 you know, I decided to move in right in the center of it, right off the strip. If you were in the strip, you were not gonna be playing top forty. You know, you could not make a living as a musician unless you had a job, a day job, and then at night you played. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that, but eventually I wound up doing that. Mm-hmm. I did. I, have, I was working at a place called Mac Naturals. Uh, so, uh you know it's a it was a health food fast food place mm-hmm. and uh, so i went over to new jersey and i got some money together working on, with my brother and then returned to la and right before i came back to la i got the phone call from kevin they had been uh, auditioning bass players and and everybody told him well it looks like the guy that you're looking for is rudy Give him a call. And he says, yeah, I think I met him. He had a funny accent, you know. Yeah. And uh, so he called me, tracked me down, got my number, called me. And I told him, hey, I'll be coming back to L.A. next week. And I, show, I get back to L.A. and I, I auditioned. I got the gig.
0: And this was 1977, 78? Uh 78. Yeah. 78, yeah. Yeah. Quiet Riot has sort of been a constant, you know, again, according to Wikipedia. Yeah. It it talked about the circumstances of why you left the first time and the second time and all that. But I I figure all that's been covered. So, uh, but coming back to Quiet Riot uh, in the Mm. mid-80s, you know, was it 82 through 85?
1: 82, 82. Well, actually, it wasn't that I came back to Quiet Riot as much as... The band disbanded, yeah. it broke up when Randy left to join Ozzy yep. in 1979. Yep, there was no you know, you, you can't replace Randy, you know, so it was like, okay, it's over. So then, as uh, a matter of fact, I was playing with Kevin in his own band because I was living with him, and uh, so I got to play with him in his band called DuBrow. Mm-hmm a lot of the songs that wound up on the Metal Health record. You know, so yeah. I it wasn't like I wasn't playing with him anymore. Yes, I, I continued playing with Kevin on and off. Also, I was a member of a band called Angel. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I was trying to stay as busy as possible. Yeah, This is right before I joined Ozzy. Yeah. So from 79, late 79 to like early 81, I was... In and out of different bands and playing with Dubrow, playing with Angel, you know, and struggling just like everybody else was in Los Angeles. Because if you were a hard rock, I mean, heavy metal wasn't even used for the local bands, you know, because heavy metal was always considered Black Sabbath.
0: Yep, yep.
1: And Deep Purple. And there was no band on the strip that was as heavy as Black Sabbath or Deep Purple, maybe the heaviest one was called bad acts mm-hmm. but nothing as genuine heavy as, as you know english metal yeah. you know and uh, so yeah so if you were a hard rock musician uh you weren't yeah you were considered dinosaur because heavy uh because new wave and punk was the music of the time
0: wow yeah the years nineteen eighty four, eighty five for yeah. Quiet Riot was probably insanity. Was that your first? Well, actually, going-
1: 83. 83, yeah. That's when we first started touring. Yeah, yeah. And I and and it was it was it was very compressed. I I recorded the last thing I I played I played the last time I played with Ozzy was for the recordings of Speak of the Devil. Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Sabbath re-recording songs. Yeah. Life of the Ritz that became an album. Mm-hmm. That was the purpose of of of, uh, of 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 doing that show. Those two shows of the Ritz was to record them live, you know. And immediately after that, I left Ozzy to rejoin what was now again rebranded as Quiet Riot. But it was a very different band, direction wise, sound wise, everything. You know, different from the Randy Rhodes version of Quiet Riot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the week prior to that, I recorded half of the Metal Health record. While while still, I was a, a member of Ozzy's band. Mm-hmm. So it was like back to back. I mean, within a matter of like ten days, I recorded both. Al- you know, on both albums. Mm-hmm. Then w- once I finished Speak of the Devil, I came back. To Quiet Riot and I finish off the record and I played on the whole record except for two songs. Uh, Chuck Wright played on Mental Health and Don't Want to Let You Go. Bef- even before I, I did any any of the sessions. Because I went in to just record one song or, uh, initially, Thunderbird, mm-hmm. for Rand- that was written by Kevin Dubrow for Randy when Randy left gotcha. to, to join Ozzy. And I had been playing that song with Kevin in Dubrow so I, I, I knew the song, it was you know. And uh, so once we finished the session, uh, we had time left because we only, you know, we we just played two takes and that was it. And so it's like uh, they start asking me, do you remember Slick Black Cadillac, which was the only song that was, a, a, was brought over from the original Randy Rose version of Quiet Riot into the Metal Health version of Quiet Riot that was, and Kevin wrote that song. And then we I also tracked about two or three other songs. So I pretty much done about ha- half the record. But I wasn't a member of Quiet Riot. I was still a member of, of Ozzy.
0: Gotcha, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing about hustling is this the more eggs you have in your basket, the more chances you have on ending up on good projects.
1: Yeah, right? but you know, I I wasn't doing it uh again because I I I, I was hus- I I wasn't really hustling at the time. I was uh, it, it, it's hard to explain because I was I was really content being a member of Ozzy, except that Randy had just passed away, and and the pain of going on stage and being on tour without Randy being there was unbearable. It was so so unbearable. I left the band. Nobody knew the success of Choir a and of fact, it looked pretty bleak. Uh, From the very beginning, we couldn't even get management. We uh, the uh, the record companies were going like, "Eh," you know, we're gonna release this, but you know, don't don't expect too much out of it. And I just did it because I wanted to get joy back in my playing. That's what I came down to. I'm playing again with Frankie Benelli, who I have been playing on and off with since 1972, when we first started playing together in Florida, South Florida. And Kevin, of course, I already have been playing with him in Choir Ryan. And Carlos Cavazzo, who is part of the, of the, of the scene of, of the rock musicians, you know, that we used to play with.
0: So as a bass player, since you just mentioned Frankie on drums, mm-hmm. uh, are there a few drummers where you feel like you have that, the mystical X factor? Not just that, oh, you're, oh, both, yeah. you're both good players, but, yeah. oh, we have something Because I explain it to people who aren't musicians as almost when you have an attraction to the opposite sex, like to a woman. Mm. It's not just that you're compatible on paper. There's Mm. something in the air that you cannot make if it's not there originally. Do you have a few drummers where you have that with where it just kind of clicks from a chemistry standpoint?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd love to say the first drummer that I had that with because I did not even know it actually existed and I was taught. By uh, was Frankie Benelli when I started playing with him in 1972. Prior to that, I was just some guy playing in party bands. Yeah, I had no idea of the concept of rhythm section. Mm-hmm. You know, especially a 60s or a 70s rhythm section. You know, which was more nowadays. You know, there's so so many drum machines and samples. You know, rhythms that you you you, you don't even know what if it's a real drummer or what's going on. You know. Uh, so that was my first, yeah, the, the person that turned me onto that and led me on that path was definitely Frankie. Then after that, uh, Tommy Aldridge, Tommy Aldridge, because Tommy is a very, uh, his body language is very unique. Mm-hmm. I, I got to a point from playing with him and Ozzy and White Snake and some of the projects that we had that peripherally I could be on stage and I could tell exactly what he was going to do by his body language the way he leaned you know with his shoulders let's say when he was going to do a fill or the way he leaned forward and so on you know so uh yes but having said that having said that i've been going th- through a t- transition period uh especially nowadays that i'm working with a uh, i'm in, i'm a member of the guess who, which mm-hmm. is a classic rock band. Mm-hmm. And things were done a bit different in the sixties and seventies than they became, you know, the set pattern of a rhythm section in the eighties. Because in the eighties the buzz the the buzzword was basically A C D C and anything from the left leopard to choir riot to everything else that came out in the eighties was really bastard children of ACDC,
0: you know, know,
1: especially rhythm section, just all the eighth notes, just keep it, no real melody, no counterpoint, nothing, it was just keeping it bouncing, you know what I mean, which really worked when you played arenas, because most arenas were not built acoustically you know, to carry over all the subtleties of a melodic rhythm section Nowadays, they are because now they build specific venues for 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 performances. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, you know, a place like the L.A. Forum, which was a basketball court, mm-hmm. you know, a- round, <laughs> a round building, perfectly round building. Yeah. It was like, you know, you started playing too fast and it was like chaos, yep. sonic chaos, yep. Yep. you know. So uh, it really helped to keep it simple, you know.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I I remember going to school when I first moved to America. I went to music school in Minneapolis. I had mm-hmm. I was an '80s rock head, mm-hmm. but my teachers were ten, fifteen years older than me, and they were '60s and '70s rock heads. And uh-huh. they were talking down. They were bass players. They were talking down about the music I loved because they said, yeah. "Well, all the bass from the '80s, yeah, it, it, you know, it wasn't as challenging and melodic." Yeah. And of course, they in school turned me on to early Aerosmith, Boston, Jefferson starship you yeah. know and and it's just crazy yeah. bass lines and like you yeah. said in an arena that would yeah. just be gone
1: uh, absolutely but also what happened was you know i, t- I telling you from experience because of being in the studio yeah we you know we talk about producers yeah producers basically became reducers mm-hmm. reducing dumb it down The it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and not just for bass also for drums you know, and to me, it wasn't until uh, certain Seattle bands or the Seattle the grunge era. Mm-hmm. This let's call it the grunge era, like um, uh, Robert DeLeo. Yep. you know, with amazing, uh, uh, amazing they they brought back that melodicism back into bass you know, which I thought, okay, there is hope now, (laughs) you know, and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, great bass riffs, you know, Soundgarden, you know, uh, Pearl Jam and all that, Alice in Chains, you know, it just, it just took it out of that, that, uh, that pattern of just playing eighth notes, and now it's pretty much a (laughs) free-for-all.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So one thing I wanted to ask you about specifically uh, is you're you're not the bass player that hides in the back by his amp all night. You've always been a, a – um, maybe it's a Cuban passion coming through, but I, I I always seen you as a guy who is as fun to watch as he is to, lis- mm. to listen to. And uh, is there anything specific that you've done physically – to make sure, like say in a band like White Snake that you yeah. were in for many years and probably did many big tours some big stages, mm-hmm. how to be physically interesting and, and put on a show and still keep your bass yeah. playing together. I think that's something that a lot of younger guys could benefit from.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, get lost in the music. And by that I mean, for example, and ex- uh, I'll give you the, the best example I can give you. It would be. Playing with Ozzy and playing with Dio, great stories in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Listen to the lyrics. Listen to what you're actually playing because you're so, you're you're part of the soundtrack to this movie
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's being that it's a movie that's being dictated by by the lyric by by the script, which is the lyric, right? And for example, when I was playing with Dio, Dio was the finest example because he actually wrote the lyrics himself. Mm-hmm. You know. And uh, songs like and, and and it was linear. You would take him performing in Dio, which is you know, I was a member of until yeah. he passed away. Take him singing I am the man in the Silver Mountain mm-hmm. from Rainbow.
3: Yep.
1: Take him to uh Heaven and Hell, Black Sabbath, which he wrote that. Take him to Holy Diver. And it's linear. It's the same person. You know what I mean? It's the same storyteller. Different bands, Rainbow, Black Sabbath, Dio, but it's the same storyteller. And I got to tell you, it was. I would just. I wasn't playing. You see, once you stop playing notes and start playing emotions. That's when you're really in it. Mm-hmm. Because it's all in here. You know what I mean? It's in your when I say here because I'm, we're, we're 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 in audio. Yeah. Nobody or, can see or, that I'm putting my finger into my head. Yeah. It's all in your mind. Once you start once you you're not even seeing the audience anymore. You're actually watching this movie unfold in front of you that's when you emotionally you start playing. Yeah. You know, which you might not get hired for that <laughs> in a lot of situations. No,
0: no, I know there's some people that don't want that from a bass player. Absolutely. But, but the people that appreciate it, mm. you know, that's always, that's always good.
1: Because probably that's expected from the artist. See, this, is, this generation is more solo artist-driven mm-hmm. than band-driven. Yes. How many bands are there on, on top of the charts? versus solo
0: artists. Now you're right. You know. That's an interesting point.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so it's expected of the solo artists to deliver that. And lately I've been seeing a lot of young solo artists that they're barely trying, especially the younger ones, because they got these gigantic walls of of cinema behind them. These uh, visuals going on, and they just stand there.
0: And dancers. And
1: dancers. Yeah. No, back in the day, it was four guys on stage, and you better entertain that whole arena. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Barely light show. You know, I mean, when we first, I mean, with Ozzy, you know, of course we had the castle later on, but we did not need the castle. We did not need the dwarf running around. You know, because you got Ozzy, you got Tommy Aldridge, and Randy Rhodes on stage playing. You get you, you know, that's entertainment. You don't want any other distraction going on.
0: It's such an interesting point because I've, I've had this exact same discussion with some people that there are younger acts that are big, multi-platinum acts right now who do that. They stand in one place and they'll emote well, but they don't move around much because they have video walls and dancers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the 80s rock scene where musicians were expected to also be entertainers, the positive side of that is a direct derivative to me of the Memphis and uh, Detroit soul music of the 60s. Because uh, I grew up a big Springsteen fan, and he always said, I stole all my stuff from Sam and Dave, you know, soul oh man. Yeah, and, yeah. and you look at Sam and Dave, Yeah, and you look at old television performances, yeah. and... They come out in nice suits. 90 seconds into the first song, they're drenched yeah. in sweat. Yeah. They basically view it as, you've given me money. Yeah. I work for you. That's I'm. right. Yes. And I always said, being a performer is a working class well, job. it just said the word, job. performer, performer. Yeah. yeah. And and you can never ex- just stand there and expect them to be impressed by you just being there. You have to earn their concert ticket money and I love how 60s soul music and 80s rock musicians seem to always go well if you paid 15 or 20 dollars for this mm-hmm. show I'm going to give you a 40 dollars show even if I fall over at the end yeah and uh if I if I might criticize Nashville a little bit where I've been for so many years and had such a lovely life is that sometimes when I, when I would feel it a lot Mm. When I would feel the the movie, feel the lyric, and they would go after, it would say after the show, people would focus more on the fact that I was so physical on stage than my playing. Mm -hmm. And they always had this thing where, well, you can't be a serious player if you're also a crazy entertainer and you love to run around. Mm. And I always, in L.A., I don't think there's ever been that. Uh, But I always had interesting discussions with people about how all my biggest heroes somehow were great at both. And I think it comes from the musicians of the scene that you were so vividly involved in and Memphis Soul. This is a big parenthesis, but I really, to me, it all all sticks together.
1: Yeah. When I mentioned to you that I was playing in clubs in Florida, those were showrooms. Yep. You put on a show. You can't stand around. You know, I oh God, it's just I, I. Okay, Jacko. I used to go and watch Jacko playing with Wayne Cochran and the CC C. Riders at the uh, Seven C's at the uh, the Newport mm-hmm. Lounge, which was really a big club. It wasn't really a lounge, and it was amazing because you had Wayne Cochran, which was basically the white James Brown. You know, came from uh, from Georgia and all of that, right? He he. That was his his brand, you know, the the, the white James Brown, Wayne Cochran. And it was a show. Again, you know, after the first song, the guy's dripping in sweat, you know. And and that was expected. Jacko, when Jacko joined Weather Report, if you remember during his solo, it was, it, was, it was insane. It wasn't just a jazz, you know, it wasn't traditional jazz solo performance, you know, for a bass player. He just broke all the rules. You know, we grew up with Hendrix, Keith Emerson throwing daggers at, at the organ. Come on, you know, did that make Keith Emerson or Jimi Hendrix less of a musician? Exactly. Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. As a matter of fact, the way I looked at it is he, they could be that wild because they were that good on their instrument. You know, and, and to me, that was always the ultimate you know, be a great musician, but also be a great performer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's something specifically uh, out of all my guests that I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about, because it, I, I do think it's part of your brand and legacy as a bass player. For me, as a guy that's grown up watching a lot of stuff you've done, it's, I've always found that to be amazing. It's like, yes, some guys go up there and, you know, you see that, you know, they ride their fame, but you always you, you always go on stage and You know, just own it. And one thing uh, I got to insert here too is, you mentioned when you first saw Quiet Riot, and you said that they had that thing where they were hungry and they wanted to do better, and they wanted to they presented a better show than the venue they were actually playing. Yeah, I call it out for blood.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. When I I, absolutely when
0: I I, sometimes I see like a school of rock, like a bunch of twelve year olds, or sometimes I'll go to a club here in the valley and see guys that are you know in their 70s playing together and sometimes when they're out for blood uh the age of the musician doesn't matter because you're tapped into this thing yes. where where you just want it more than you want anything else you yes. know i've been on, on on big stages in front of 10 20,000 people where a person have gone up to me said hey i wonder what's for catering later in my ear, yeah, and and the person's tremendous <laughs> musician, but it made me never want to play with him again, because it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like having sex and somebody comes up and tells you about stock market. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like talking about ruining somebody's buzz. <laughs> I
1: don't know if it depends on uh, hey, yeah.
0: how
1: about you know, invest in Apple.
0: Yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, that, that's something, if I ever talk to Duff McKagan, I have to have that talk because he's, he's famous for his early Starbucks investments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And I bet you it did happen during sex.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So you talked about Dio, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, I'm calling Wikipedia here. You joined in
1: 2004. Four. Yeah, yeah, 2004.
0: Those records were all Jimmy Bane, yeah, uh, and you know,
1: and Geezer Butler because we yeah. we, we played a mix of everything. Yeah, uh, Rainbow. Yeah, which was uh, I I got to learn that Blackmore played on some of those bass on some of those records. Yeah, the yeah, Rainbow records and Bob Daisley and Jimmy Baines.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and both Geezer with his uh, with his specific brand of finger style. Oh yeah. Uh, and Jimmy Bain with mm. his very signature Yamaha BB, that's right, yeah. Uh, tone. Mm. Those are both very specific bass tones. Mm. And when you joined Dio and played those songs, mm. you you went in as Rudy Sarzo. There was no, there was no expectation from Ronnie to do anything, or were there?
1: Yes, but there was expectation from myself. Yep. So you know, t-
0: so, it, how did you approach that game? I because... approach that.
1: You know, it's interesting when you, you're talking about uh, it, whether using a pick or finger picking. You know, or or you know, like Geezer, Jimmy Baines, Bob Daisley. To me, is it's it's more choice of notes mm-hmm. rather than the fingering style, yep. picking style, because you could have. You know, you could play with a pick, but not choose the right notes or the right feel, and it's not going to make a difference, you know? Whereas if you play with your fingers and you use a certain tone, but see, the way I approached it was because I had to, like, I had to uh, celebrate all bass players. So I came up with a, a, a balanced tone that would represent... All of the different basses.
0: That's very dance. interesting. Like yeah. a tribute to all of them at the same time.
1: Absolutely. It? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: But it was also getting also <laughs> I'm playing. Okay, let's say I joined Dio in 2004. Simon Wright was the drummer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not the original drummer on any of the songs that we were playing, except for the for the later on Dio music. Yeah. Yep. You know. And uh, so there was a lot of, uh, let's say, Cozy Powell or the original Rainbow rhythm section that was actually Elf, you know, that became uh, uh, Rainbow. And then, and then they added new musicians for the subsequent records, you know, 2 and, and from the second record on. Then you have Black Sabbath, which was Bill Ward and a little bit of Vinny. And then you have Vinny. So by the time that I'm playing with Simon... I'm playing with Simon. I'm not playing with these other guys. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, okay, I got to get the feel of what Simon, Simon treats those songs. Because, you know, I, I've, I've jammed with Vinnie Appice many times. And he's got one of the most be back behind the beat feels of any drummer I've ever played with. Big it. fingerprint. You hear it's him in one bar, don't you? He he just oh, yes. sounds
0: like himself like absolutely. Crazy. It yeah.
1: sounds like he missed the down you know, the snare hit but he just hits it right there at the small window because two you know, it's like yeah. it's amazing. You know, yes. it has to he really conducts the band, you know, and uh so when I started playing with, with with Simon, he's more on top of the beat. Like like he got that from playing with ACDC. Mm-hmm. You know, once you play with AC/DC, I think you're 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 an ACDC member for the rest of your life. Or at least you treat everything else you do as because it's such a specific style. Mm-hmm. And Simon explained
0: it to me. You know how uh, did he explain it? Me being a huge Phil Rudd fan, I gotta ask this question.
1: Yeah, there is a certain purpose, the way that those songs are played out, they're very... Not as much analyzed, but uh, but there is a... There's an element. See, ACDs just didn't happen by accident. Not it was all. actually... Okay, it w- there, there's a purpose to it, you know, and that's what made it so unique.
0: They have a big live from Donington DVD from 91, and mm-hmm. there's a different drummer on there than Phil Rudd, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it just doesn't... F- feel as good the energy is high and it's very pro Mm -hmm. but Phil Rudd has a limp in his snare drum Mm -hmm. much like Vinny there's a limp in the snare don't yeah there's a little bit of a limp in the snare yeah and uh, playing along to ACDC records with Phil Rudd on them as a bass player yeah to me you can almost feel the chemistry of his yeah aura coming through the speakers it's so powerful yeah yeah
1: I, when I first joined the Guess Who, uh, I was just asked one thing by the guys in the band, which was basically to drive the band, which Mm -hmm. was really interesting because I I was really used to uh, following the drummer. Like if the drummer would slow down, I would slow down. You know what I mean? The dynamics, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. And I was asked to say, "Okay, drive it." And I thought, "Wow, this is—it's an interesting challenge because it
0: means leading the drummer."
1: Yeah, uh, not because the drummer. You know, we have uh, I, I, our drummer is Gary Peterson. Mm-hmm. He is the founding member of of the Guess Who. He's been on every single record that the Guess Who have, have ever recorded, but he's got a very—he weaves, which is very traditional of pre-rock and roll drummers swing band big band you know i i've i've done i i did a show with carl palmer one time it was the same thing because he comes from a uh, big band background Mm -hmm. you know pre-rock and roll and they swing when they play swinging is not necessarily rock and roll Rock and like that, right? That. For example, Mark so such a great rock and roll drummer. I mean, I'm sorry, uh bass player. He's also he's also a great rock and roll drummer, but you know, as I'm talking about the bass playing right now. It's very on the beat. He drives it downbeat, downbeat, right? There's no none of that. It's all It's all of that, right? Which is almost like Motown. You know, know. whereas uh, so that to me that was really interesting because I've I've always done the opposite. I've always been that guy that's like you know playing in between on the ups and the downs and 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 they
0: asked you to take a new role. Basically
1: me. Yes. Yeah. 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 And first I had to be like really conscious of it. And my, f- my left foot started, started uh, getting a pain in the knee from tapping my leg because that became my metronome, yeah. <laughs> my left foot, you know? So instead of like running around now, I have a role. I'm driving this, you know, and, and our drummer, he's so great. I mean, he's like, he's got the most fantastic feel, because it's very unique. It's a pre-rock and roll feel. I mean, this guy he plays jazz. He plays Latin jazz. He plays rock. I mean, it's it's just it's such a blessing to play with musicians like that.
0: That leads me to another thing. Uh, I feel like a lot of younger kids discovering old rock. Mm-hmm. The thing that you just talked about is such a great topic when it comes down to being just a nerdy bass player mm-hmm. or a drummer. Uh, the swing versus straight thing. Because... When rock and roll was born, if mm-hmm. you listen to Little Richard and Chuck Berry, yes. which I do a lot, yeah, yeah, you have the piano player going, dang, 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 straight, dun, dun. like you yeah. were saying, yeah, and the drummer's not,
1: yes, yeah, right,
0: and and if that was so not planned; <laughs> mm-hmm. they just didn't know how to play any other way, and yes. they put it together. And I think now, when when we do studio jobs when somebody swings a little too much and the other guy's a little too straight we recut it so it sounds like we're on the same planet and may- maybe then we're ruining the magic because the magic on those records with those guys coming from separate worlds is just undeniable
1: yes and i'm so glad you mentioned that because if you if you recall like all the early rock recordings there were only like 3 or 4 people On that, musically, you know, like there would be a piano, there would be a stand-up bass, later later on an electric bass, one guitar, and drums. Yeah. And the sound was huge because there was a lot of... Not everybody was playing metronomically, right on the beat on top of each other. So there was a lot of, like, there was a sound before the drums and a sound after the drums. And the drums were, like, in the middle. You're like you mentioned, the piano will be gan, 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 right on top, the drums a little behind, maybe the guitar and the bass just a little bit, even further back. Mm-hmm. You know, and that created a huge sound. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas today, and that's why I find modern records are overly produced, because there's not, everybody's playing on top of each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's even hard to mix, because how do you mix that? Even if you spread it, everybody is coming... Out of the speakers at the same time. Plus, back in the day, we used to be a little bit looser on stage. <laughs> Some of us, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, for example, look, yeah, I. People talk about I, I, I've do these events called the uh, 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 Randy Rose Remember,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And and we get a lot of singers coming up to sing Aussie. And they all try to sing Ozzy, and they're all right on top of the beat. The Ozzy style is right behind, you know. Like if something would be like this, Mister Crowley, you know, he yeah. was like right, right yeah. behind the beat. You yeah. know, he's not on top of the beat, going Mister Crowley, da 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 da. <laughs> yeah. no, that, that's not it, you know. Yeah. So all these musicians that would have to be so stylized. You know, sing completely different. Like, again, going back to the days of big band. All, you know, Frank Sinatra. He slides into the notes and he
0: swings it. And, you know, it's big. Sounds huge. It's not right on top of the beat. He treats time. Frank Sinatra treats time as a suggestion, not a rule. Interesting. (laughs) I think. Interesting, yes. You know, all of me. Why yeah. not take yeah, 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 yeah. all of me? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's the phrasing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Phrasing. I was. I was just today. I was. I was. Uh, I was uh, reading a book, and and I came upon the uh, phrasing section of the book, music book, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it says phrasing literally means breath. Mm-hmm. Whatever notes melody you can do within one breath, that's phrasing, and. Us musicians, like you know bass players that uh, play with our fingers, we can play a melody that it's like you know what, thirty bars
2: mm-hmm.
1: with, because we we're, we're breathing, we're not, we don't have to like stop our fingers from playing because we need to take a breath, mm-hmm. you know and I think that when it comes to soloing, that is really an a, 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 I, and I find myself doing that a lot, mm-hmm. that I solo too, I play too many notes for too long. I don't take, I don't, phrasing is something that I really need need to work on.
0: Likewise, uh, I had a great teacher back in music school in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was a, I was a total long-haired (laughs) metalhead, but I loved all music. And he was a jazz guy. Uh Uh, And he he told me when there was nobody else around, because he'd curse, he'd cuss a lot, but he didn't want to cuss in front of the students. He told me in a private lesson, he's like, when you take a solo, Say what you got to say and get the fuck out. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: and uh, most of the gigs I do, I don't get to solo. Uh-huh. I've been subbing this summer uh-huh. for Dawkin. So ah, I, you have? Yeah, so I just did my last week, uh, weekend with them last weekend. Uh-huh. And uh, they have a bass solo in their show. Mm. And some nights I play 45 seconds. Some mm. nights I play two and a half minutes. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not saying one is better than the other. Yeah. I just Some nights I'm like, oh. That was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm done. You're
1: done. You yeah. Know? That's all you got to say. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh
0: but bass soloing is really interesting when you're used to being the uh framework for everyone else's soloing. I think a lot of bass players uh that play jazz or, or fusion or uh but the genres I've made a living in, soul, R and B, country and hard rock, it's just you just want to be a framework for everyone else, and it's my brain almost freaks out when I solo after all these years because I have to rewire to do the opposite of everything I've been trained for.
1: Yes, and I'm going through the same thing and um, the way that I look at it is rock and roll it's not really conducive of of a proper solo mm-hmm. and and I, and this is my opinion. Because basically, if you're playing rock and roll, it's pretty much pentatonic. Mm-hmm. You know, if you listen to Page and all those, they don't use a whole lot of extensions unless it's in the framework of a particular song, yep. like the Rain song. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about extensions and different, you know, chordings and things like that. But if you're talking about a song like, let's say, rock and roll, it's it's basically pentatonic blues bass soloing that sounds, pentatonic. they sound to me better as you go up the strings on the B and the E. Mm-hmm. You know, typical guitar solo. Yep. When you're all the way down an octave and doing pentatonic, it just sounds really pedestrian.
0: Pedestrian is so the word. You know? Yeah,
1: yes. It's like, and but that is the sound of rock and roll.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: once you start going outside of that, in my, uh, like, let's say, typical docking audience... <laughs> You know, you start doing the flat nines and the, and the flat six, they're not going to hear it. You know, the uh, the Lydian, you know, dominant, they're going to go, oh, he's playing wrong notes. Yeah. Because to them, it's wrong. Yeah. You know, to play a sharp fourth rather than, you know, just to play whatever Mixolydian riff you're going to be playing, you know, yeah. or a pentatonic, yeah. you know. So they're going, oh, yeah, he, he must be drunk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, or he or he's not metal enough for something. That's right. You know. That's right.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you if you actually if you if you go back and you listen to uh, let's say Cliff Burton, mm-hmm. Cliff Burton, you know, uh, or Geezer Butler, mm-hmm. which is it, it, to me it's like in the same direction. It's very pentatonic riffing, and they would use a wah wah, you know, just like Cliff did, Geezer did, you know, and yeah. So now you got a little effect because you're bringing the note up higher. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting out of out of that that base, and when you're sticking in the wah wah, it just goes up frequency wise. It just shifts up one octave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you know. Now, okay, now I can do some pentatonic riffing, and it's gonna sound cool because I got the wah wah going on, and, and this and that, or or maybe you know, like uh, tapping with Billy Sheehan. But it's all based on he's not doing a whole lot of extensions. No. you know, he's just basically doing pentatonic riffing. You Absolutely, know, you know, really well you know, beautifully with a distorted sound to give it more of that guitar, you know, tone to it. But it is what it is, you know, and that's exactly what I was getting at when when we first started the conversation, that I'm looking to get outside of that, you know, not necessarily in a performing setup, but more of a, to get that that, that joy of playing outside of what I've been playing all this time. Because it's in my head, and I want to get out of my head.
0: Yeah, you and me both, man. thing that really you know in school they say hey to practice your soloing and your phrasing that thing where you don't play more notes than you can in a breath to practice that learn solos from other instruments Mm -hmm. so you know there's a lot of bass players learning sax solos Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. charlie parker which is like Mm. he doesn't breathe barely yeah but me i'm a huge pop guy i love cheesy Mm. pop music Mm -hmm. i listen to Billy Ocean and Cyndi Mm -hmm. Lauper and all these 80s pop, and there's a lot of great sax solos. Oh, yeah. So, my thing right now Mm -hmm. uh, is I like to learn pop sax solos, Mm -hmm. and they are not out. They're all within Mm -hmm. uh, diatonic, they're all within the scale, Mm -hmm. but they slide up to certain notes. And you know, the great thing about sax, Mm -hmm. much like fretless bass, is you can imitate the human voice. Yeah. So, my thing right now yeah. to get out of my box is to learn pop saxophone yeah. solos.
1: Do you, do you have the Burgonzi books?
0: I don't have them. No. Yeah, but I know what they are. Yeah, yet. yeah. You will really, really enjoy those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, especially
1: the, the pentatonic books.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I found that the more somebody because I the reason I got into being a backup musician mm-hmm. is not because I loved the sound of the bass more than anything or the love the sound of it's because i love the human voice the human voice to me is the most interesting thing mm-hmm. and so what i am from a nerd technical standpoint yeah. you and me both is very Yeah. so if you don't like listening to a great singer mm-hmm. why choose a job where you back up a great singer all your life yeah that's the way i always look at yeah. it so anything i can learn on bass that will imitate mm-hmm. the greatest singers, or what a human voice can yeah. do—the bends and the g- the glistening between notes. Uh, I find that that really helps my bass playing, and, yeah, and I have fun with it.
1: I think, it, to me, that's what separates Jacko from everybody else. I, he sings to me. Jeff yeah. Beck is another one that he sings. Oh, absolutely! His guitar is like. To me, it sounds like somebody's talking, or you know, vocal, yeah. very, very vocal, vocal, very musical. It's interesting you mentioned that because, like, like uh, just to reiterate on what you're saying about the voice, the voice is the only instrument that, w- once we die, nobody else gets. Wow, it it we take it with us. Everything else we curate. You're a curator of that base for as long as you want it to be, mm-hmm. and I'm a curator of, of my collection of bases. Mm-hmm. Someday, just like this, for example, this base in particular, I bought it used. It belonged to somebody. There has there's some history to it that I have no idea about. But somebody else owned it.
0: There's some somebody, so, somebody else's voodoo is in there.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. A DNA and and, yeah. and body fluids and. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that. And since this is a very bass-centric podcast, because I know you've talked a lot about your career, but uh-huh. but the thing with this podcast is we get nerdier with the bass stuff than I love anywhere it. else. So we've already talked about all the soloing and all that stuff. So you've had, and as to my knowledge, mm. what I've seen, mm. you probably had more, but three different Signature models. Back in the day, you had a PV Signature model, right?
1: I had one before that, a
0: Washburn. Okay
1: that's uh, the, okay, all my mistakes. You know, I guess it's kind of like a relationship. Yeah. Like you make your mistakes in your first relationship, your first girlfriend, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I make, okay, you make mistakes on that. I, yeah, I made m- other mistakes with other girlfriends. But, you know, on the first one, you get it, you know. And I got it on my first base. Uh, the, my first base was that it was a very weird shape, very 80s. And it had, like, these stripes to them. It was because I wanted to create something unique out of respect to the other brands out there. I didn't want to, like, make a copy of. Like, a lot of brands at the time were creating copies of these other, you know, either a Gibson or or a Fender. Mostly a Fender, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I wanted to stay away from that. Okay, so that was my Washburn which is actually it's 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 a collector's item because it's so unique looking now it looks are, are you familiar with that I don't think I am yeah yeah it's uh, it's it was not a very uh it was not the type of bass that you expect when you walk into a wedding to to see the <laughs> wedding band bass player play yeah. that was not but it was very 80s you know yeah. and then after that I learned that And I say okay, now when uh, a few years later, PV approached me, this is by 1988, to build a base. And it was actually built, uh, designed along with the engineers at the company. And we spent about a year working on it from the electronics to the body shape and the wood. And that's my PV signature model, the first one. And then after that, they built something called the Cirrus. And then I had another signature model with the Cirrus, mm-hmm. but still with PV. And the Cirrus was pretty much a, co- a continuation of of my of my initial signature model.
0: What What was the details on the initial PV signature model? Because that thing, yeah, both looks and sounds. Yeah, amazing it, to
1: me. it was a little. W- at the time, I was playing an Aria, uh-huh. the Aria Two Pro, yeah. And there were certain things that I liked about it, but but it was still a little bit cumbersome. Mm -hmm. A lot of wood, a lot of weight to it. So I made it more streamlined, still 24 fret. And then uh, with the Arias, I couldn't use the stock pickups. So I had either Olympics or Bartolini's installed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in them. And uh, with the PV, we worked on the electronics from the ground up. Uh, I brought in some EMG's, some Bartolini's, and some... uh, Uh, limbic pickups to look and under the scope, and we chose certain frequencies of each. And we just came up with a hybrid with a preamp and all of that. Having said that, I lean more towards passive nowadays than I do active. Same, you know, absolutely. And I think I and 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 I know this is a sidebar from from talking about my signature model, but I more sidebars, please. Sidebar, okay. But I find that, that you know back in the day, not until recently did bass players have bass uh pedals mm-hmm. made for bass. you know a lot of times we were use like a chorus and you plug it in and it would cut off a lot of the bass frequencies because it was not designed for the bass guitar mm-hmm. you know, but now there's all these companies like dark glass and e b s and you know um, uh, t c electronics uh and uh, Tech 21 and so on, that are bass-centric. You know, so, you know, if you plug in the bass of this pedal, you're not going to lose the bottom end. Mm. You know, so now, I don't need to install a preamp in my instrument because that's, to me, you know, and, and, and I've used a lot of great preamps, but what happens is, a preamp is like a DNA. It's like a signature, like a thumbprint.
0: Very strong.
1: Very strong. Yeah. So what you get that's what you're going to get. You know, it's not diverse. And if you have an instrument that is passive, then you can add whatever pedal to give you whatever tone you're using without ha- and also I mean I used to own a 67 jazz bass mm-hmm. and I completely Frankensteined it. You know, I had to like you know route a hole in it to you know to get the preamp in there because everybody was using preamps back in the late seventies and so on and it was like damn this this you know of course I wasn't thinking about vintage back then but nowadays it would be like it's it's not, doesn't it doesn't hold up the value as if you you know if somebody comes up and say hey check out this sixty seven pristine passive base you know perfect condition yeah you know. So that's another thing that, because even though you buy a base today, 50 years from now, it's going to be a vintage base.
0: Absolutely. And
1: you don't want to be messing up with original, you know, design of it.
0: That thing is 35 years old. Yeah, yeah. It looks great. (laughs) Yeah. I bought about four. I'm pointing at my Yamaha BB3000, BB3000S for those of you guys who Mm -hmm. really care. It's got... Two vo- volume separate volume knobs instead of a little rocker switch, mm-hmm. and it's got jazz bass spacing on the neck instead of P bass spacing mm-hmm. like a normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I found since I live in LA, I play a lot more hard rock than I did in Nashville. Part of the reason I moved, yeah. so that's that's good. But uh, these pickups they sound angry, and they sound angrier the harder you push. And for me, active mm. electronics, the harder you push, the more the DNA of the preamp comes through. Instead of the DNA of that attack, absolutely. So that's why I love passive pickups. Uh, to dumb it down, I love passive pickups because they can take a beating and they just yeah. lean back and lets you beat more.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so, just so to yeah. So you. fast forward to now, I'm playing uh Spectre signature bass, and and I was playing the the uh, the regular XL fours. Yep. Yeah. Euro. Euro. Check. Yeah, the shake. I started playing that about maybe five five years ago, and actually this is how it came about. I was, I, I I did a tour with Jeff Tate, and it was called Queenstrike at the time because they they were battling it out to see who was going to keep the name. Either yeah. the, those guys or or Jeff, you know. And
0: you did the Operation Mindcrown twenty fifth anniversary tour, right? I think Is that
1: what right. it was called? Yeah,
0: yeah, according to Wikipedia, that's what you played.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Anyhow. but but it was basically the Jeff Tate version of Queen's. I fight. digress. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wikipedia. Yeah. It must be true. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I go there just to find out what did I do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I started playing with them, you know, and I'm going, ah, my bass just doesn't. It's not. See, to me, instruments are like characters or personalities or, or, or like in a movie,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a character in a movie, mm-hmm. you know? And my character in that Operation Mindcrime movie playing the PV series wasn't the right casting, yeah, you know? Yep. And I'm going like, ah, oh, man. So I contacted Spectre, and they sent me a euro. Mm-hmm. And I said, because that's what the original bass player playing in the band,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, in Queenstrike. Yep. And there it was, the character that I was looking for, you know, the casting, recast, you know, my instrument. And so I, I became a fan of it. And I got to tell you, for all the years that I had been playing, I had never gotten so much uh, compliments on my tone as I did once I started playing that Spectre.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was a stock Euro 4XL. Is right,
1: right off the rack. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for that particular music, it was the correct bass, you know. And, but see, I do so many projects, so many different things, that imagine you being a, a handyman showing up at the job site with one screwdriver, flathead. You can't do that.
0: Man. No, this is the, the, the golden rule of being a sideman is, you know, is you have to have many tools. That's right. I had lunch with a younger bass player two days ago who had been in bands all his life, and he's 28, 29, and he said, well, I'm thinking of becoming a freelance guy. And he says, what do I need? He says, I have a music man. I said, get an old hollow body Epiphone or any Mm -hmm. cheap brand so you can get those old Paul McCartney tones and the Hollybody seventies guild tones. And yes. then get yourself a P bass. I don't care if it's a Squire yeah. for two hundred dollars. Yes. Just find one that sounds good. And then you have more than a flathead screwdriver.
1: Yeah. So exactly. You
0: found that in Queensrike, you need definitely needed the Phillips head.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. An Allen wrench. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I what I want to ask you about, because I since I just bought a Spectre a few weeks ago used uh-huh. for exactly the bass you're talking about. Yeah, I started Googling everything about other four-string Spectres, and your mm. signature model came up fast. Yeah, And I read about the pickups, and mm. that seemed like a really smart mm. upgrade. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well,
1: those? this is what happened, about uh, because we have been working on, on that bass for about four years now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I was at the NAM show about three years before, and and a friend of mine takes me over to a booth as I was leaving. This is like the last day of Nam show. I'm like out the door and this friend of mine says, hey, come here let me introduce you to some people and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I had just finished a meeting with Spectre talking about what we're going to do with my signature model. And I have never had a signature model that was not designed from the ground up. Mm-hmm. But with Spectre, there are certain... Parameters that they work with—that
0: makes it a specter.
1: That make it a specter, you know. And once you got a specter, you you, you know, you just don't want to mess with the formula, you know. Mm -hmm. So I I was given two choices: either a Coda, Mm -hmm. that again, it's a little too close to a Fender for my own, you know. It's like uh, I really want to play a Fender clone uh, with my name on it. No, I got—I grew up playing Fender. I have friends at Fender. I. You know, Fender is Fender. I have to respect Fender. Mm-hmm. You know. So I decline on that. I said, okay, the Europe. And they were talking about different colors and finishes. And I'm going like, it's just gonna be my name on a base that we because it's got it's pink. <laughs> or whatever <laughs> color it's gonna yeah. be, right? <laughs> I like so I was like real going like, Oh man, this is this is no good. You know, I, I so I, I come upon this booth. And uh, the company is called Enfield, Enfield, and Sims, Martin Sims, he made, he created these pickups that you can switch from, you know, the the, the three basic configuration of pickups are the split pickup, mm-hmm. the humbucker, and the single coil. Mm-hmm. So this pickup, it's built so you can switch between them, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, I saw that and I said, that's what I need. That something unique, okay, it's it's gonna be a Spectre body and this and that, but it's gonna have these pickups because that's that's another thing. Uh, uh he's got a line of bases and field bases which are phenomenal. I, I have one. And but also he sells the pickups to be installed on any base. Mm-hmm. So it's like this is perfect. He makes these pickups so I can actually let me talk to Spectre. About using these pickups on my si- in my signature model, and I gotta tell you the response that I'm getting from it is just is, is incredible uh the first run had the the tone pump the the, the traditional yeah. yeah traditional tone pump that comes with the specters. The problem that I have with it well, which is not a problem is that it sounded just like a traditional specter mm-hmm. because that preamp it's it's pretty much of the DNA yep. of that of that tone. And I wanted something a little bit different, you know. So I uh, on this last NAM show, Korg acquired Spectre. Mm-hmm. Now Korg has all these different brands, one of them is Dark Glass. Mm-hmm. And there was one a Spectre base with a dark glass preamp, and I'm going, Oh wow, this is different. It doesn't sound like your typical Spectre. It has a certain tonal quality to it. And I say, okay, I what I'm going to do is uh, on my bass, my my own personal bass has got a dark glass, but Spectre has designed a specific preamp that is in between the dark glass and the tone pump for my bass because it needed to have that... Um, a different quality preamp. I don't mean quality as far as how good it is; just quality, tonal quality yeah. preamp to match the 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 range of the Sims pickups. And I, I try both. I I have my 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 dark glass preamp in my bass, and then at Sweetwater, I was I did, a, I did Gear Gear GearFest, mm-hmm. and I was playing the one stock with the new tone pump, and it's just magnificent. Mm-hmm. It's magnificent. I'm really happy with it. Another thing that they did, which I requested, and <laughs> sometimes things get lost in translation, I requested to have the horn uh, deeper. Yeah, because if you look at a five-string spectre, mm-hmm. th- uh, the bottom horn ends on the 24th fret, mm-hmm. so you have
0: easy access. Much like all your PV model did that, too. Yes, right? yes, yes yeah.
1: yeah. And so I requested that. But for the four string it the only way that they could make it work was to actually move back the sides move move them down. you know what I mean so now there's more there's about an inch extra wood at at the uh, the bottom of the base, mm-hmm. you know by the bridge mm-hmm. behind the bridge it's about an extra inch which gives a little bit more weight to it, more body and and the horns are a little bit lower about an inch mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So with these pickups, when you play your own signature model bass, mm-hmm. do you have one setting as far as the as far as the humbucker single coil? The switch? Do you have one setting where you set it and forget it, or do you use the capabilities and switch around?
1: I use it. It, it, it depends. I, I use it for recording a lot mm-hmm. because it's like you know I I have racks of bases and sometimes I go you know instead of going around switching basses, because I like to I like to cast the basis that I have for certain recordings. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, for example, yeah, I'm pretty sure you do the same thing. You yeah. have people that send you tracks from all over the world and say, okay, play on this. And you listen to the first time you go, you start imagining the sound that will go along with it. Because it's all it's all about timber. Not wood, but T-I-M-B-R-E. Correct. The, the sound, right? And you want the, that timber to be you know to stand out in in the mix you know to be there not sometimes you, you if you play a certain instrument and everything else around it is very aggressive it's not it's not going to hold its own place in the frequencies mm-hmm. you know it's going to get swallowed by all the harmonics from all the other instruments so you want something that just has that specific quality to it you know tonal quality because you just can't depend on the engineer getting it Oh, you know, because I, I, I used to send just one track. Now I send two tracks. I send direct and what I think the bass should sound in the track. Sometimes they use it, sometimes they don't, but, you know, at least I, I'm giving them a reference of how, when I tracked it, this is what the bass sounded like.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. So that leads us to my next question then. Your little home recording setup yeah. for doing, I call it mail order bass.
1: Yes, <laughs> mail order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So <laughs> for when you do the, because I do the same thing, I send them a, a clean. Yeah. And uh, especially if I play with a pick, which yeah. I do a lot, I, I, yeah. I send them one that, not necessarily with distortion on it, just a little sauce, so yeah. that I have fun with it when I record. Yeah. And I send them that, and I go, hey, that's mine, and mix as yeah. you like. So what is sort of your go-to even though I know that you cast different characters, yeah. What is your go-to home recording sort of setup?
1: Yeah, lately, you know, it's been evolving. But lately, what I'm using, well, for the interface, I have a Zoom interface. Yeah. You know, the little Zoom works beautiful. Yeah. You know, and then uh, this friend of mine, Phil Susan, uh, he worked on the design. He's a bass player, you know, yeah. Phil. Yeah. You know, I know yep. him. Uh, on the on the uh, on the uh, the creation of this module called the Basics. Have you heard about it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That I have. the Basics, you know, he was one of the guys that work with the uh, the uh, the what is it? The Trident. The the guy They're who British, designed the Trident board. Or
0: what are they? They're you're a British company. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, British.
1: Basics, you know, so he gave me a Basics and yeah. ever since I've been using that. That's my preamp. And before it goes into the Zoom and then I try different things, you know, it depends on the recording. I want to get pretty much of a a robust direct tone. When I go direct, it's not just clean wimpy direct. It's it's got it has to have muscle to yeah. it, you know, definition, especially if I'm using a passive bass,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And a lot of times I use uh, Boss pedals. I have Boss choruses, Boss distortion. I've added. Dark glass which I use live also mm-hmm. uh, my 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 line is the vid, uh, vintage ultra mm-hmm. um uh preamp you yep. know a little uh, and then it goes into a TC electronics uh corona chorus right into the compressor the hydra compressor um dark glass mm-hmm. very nice, very thick, very robust muscular without being loud mm-hmm. you know. And I'm I'm live because the Guess Who is such a classic rock band, you know the sound, you know, and the audience expect that, and I expect that, and I, and I must respect the legacy. I use a passive bass, and the only passive bass that I have with a split and a and a, uh, a single coil setup, a PJ setup, is a uh, Yamaha. Mm BP-34.
0: And I love it. And that's one of their uh, new models. The new models. Which are bolt-on, but incredible bases. Six six bolts. Bolt-on. Yeah, and the, the... the two bolts are yes. furthest into the body. They've angled in yes. at 45 degrees, not only to pull the neck and the body onto each other, mm. but also into each other, which I guess is something they worked so well on the Billy Sheehan signature model that mm. they said we're going to use it on every single bass we make, even the It gear.
1: is magnificent, especially like in my case, our guitars are FedExed from gig to gig. Oh, okay. About a month ago, we opened up one of the cases. And we found a Les Paul busted at, at at the uh where the uh where the headstock meets mm-hmm. the uh the neck. Yeah. It can be rough out there. Yeah. You know. So,
0: so I've seen some type of ad on Facebook mm-hmm. from a company making acoustic bass. acoustic
1: bass. yes. You
0: have either you endorse them or you have a signature model. No, it's, no, it's, it's a signature model. model. Yes. It's called
1: Sawtooth and as a matter of fact they're they're local to Moore Park.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: And uh, that one, I, I designed it from the bottom up, just from scratch. Awesome. I mean, as a matter of fact, they had to build a mold at the factory. It's the same factory that's built uh, like Court and Breedlove and, and all these other great brands. And uh, they, we had to build our own specific mold for it. Again, easy access to the 24th fret. Uh, fretless and fretted. Uh, the fretted version has it comes in left hand, right hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fishman uh, preamp. It's just a magnificent bass, just fantastic. And
0: will you let everyone know exactly what it's called so we plug it as well? Uh,
1: uh, I, I, the company's called Sawtooth,
0: and the model is called just uh,
1: just the Rudy Sarzo okay. uh, uh, acoustic bass. Yeah, signature bass. Yeah. And
0: so. F- the Fishman systems always sound good in those acoustic basses to me. Is it a thing too? Where if you and I were sitting here playing jazz, it's so loud. It's loud.
1: It's loud. Bass? It's loud. My, uh, you know, my my bedroom is far away from our living room, and my I, I can't play it at home in the morning. Oh, because it is that loud. My Actually, wife would start yelling at me. Actually, she texts me. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the text would say. you're too loud, stop playing the acoustic
2: bass.
0: (laughs) See, that's a great endorsement for an acoustic (laughs) bass, because us bass players, every time I buy an acoustic bass, and I love it, and I I, I use it on records, and then I have an unplugged rehearsal on the bus with a few acoustic guitars, and all of a sudden I'm like, why are you louder than me?
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. No, this is loud. This is loud, and it's got a top hole, sound hole. Coming up at you. Uh, Right up you. Almost like a monitor. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it's got f holes, you know the uh, actually f clef yeah. holes, well, you know f holes also you know yeah. the acoustic guitars have that, but yeah. this is actually f clef holes, yeah,
0: well, I'm gonna have to google a lot more about that bass when I get home because I'd seen it, but I wanted to hear all about it, yeah,
1: I have a I have a couple of demos on uh YouTube
0: mm-hmm. yeah well I'm yeah,
1: I, I you know, you should have mentioned when I brought them you yeah. know, so you could check them out, yeah
0: um. So I asked you to bring a bass just in case we played some, which I, yeah. I do with some guys. But yeah, just but out of curiosity, because you have so many basses, mm. what did you bring today?
1: Ah, probably the most unexpected bass you could uh, you could expect from me, from my collection. All but, right.
0: But, you just know, I... Don't get nervous, listeners. I'm taking out my cell phone and taking pictures of this just and, so uh, I'll post them.
1: And I found this on Reverb, and I've been looking for one of these for, for the longest time. Because, you know, I, I love Fender. Yes, and um, and in the history of Fender, I think that they've had maybe two or three, and this model being one of them, mm-hmm. twenty-four fret bases, mm-hmm. Urge the uh, Stew Ham base, the oh, yeah. Urge, but it was not it was not a a regular scale, mm-hmm. it was a medium scale base, and this is called the uh, Fender Twenty Four. We're
0: sitting we're sitting in chairs with huge armrests, so we're we're ha- we're having to adjust here.
1: Oh here it is. The snark travels <laughs> when you drop it. It's a
0: wonderful it's invention.
1: This, oh yeah, I, I love the snark. Uh, and TC Electronics also makes makes a really nice one too. But uh yeah, you'll probably
0: want it, to uh I'll just take a quick picture. It. Just take a quick picture okay, of it. We're taking
1: a photo and of course I gotta do the horns up when we take the picture here. Yep. Okay. Yeah. and make the face.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Here, wow. Check it out. I'll check it out.
1: Yeah, also it also has six six bolts uh bolts in the back. And what's really interesting about it is that it's it's active. There's there's one of the models that they made that actually you you can go active passive. This one is not. It's got Seymour Seymour Duncan pickups and preamp. And actually there's a little scoop.
0: Are these uh Yeah, ba-
1: yeah, baselines, you know, Seymour Duncan's. Yeah. yeah, and also check out the uh, the scoop. There's there's a switch in the back, yeah. uh, right there, a switch. Oh, no no, yeah. Yeah, it, it gives you like a scoop for slapping.
0: Yeah, it was on scoop, I think. Yeah. 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 And that's more of a yeah. Man.
1: 24 fret.
0: I love this neck, too. Uh,
1: it's a great neck. You know, it's made in Korea. They only made them for about three or four years. And I was crazy looking for one of those online. And this is the only one I've ever seen with amber maple uh, maple top.
0: It's beautiful. Amber.
1: It is beautiful.
0: And it, it, it has a neck where you feel like, oh, this is thick. This is but it's very playable. It's very playable. And the bass has enough weight to where it feels yes. like it's got tone, but it... it
1: yeah. W- and the tone, I just love everything about that bass. And so it's the one that I've been playing the most because I, I've been practicing double thumping, and it's the one that actually...
0: This has a pretty good little...
1: Doesn't it? Uh, for fun. actually, for being active. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, it's... Yeah, great little bass. I love it. So um, not the bass that I expected you to bring See, at yeah, all. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but but it's it's again it's it's the you know uh, sometimes you p- pick up a bass and you have to like break yourself into it.
0: That neck was like, hi, I know you exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's kinda of like a slut. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're like, I've been with this woman cool before. It might have been a different woman, right. but it's got all the same features. Yeah. We're horrible. Because We're horrible I, humans. You know, I,
1: I have the fifty nine precision, which is wonderful. I picked it up at Norman's, yeah. you know, right up right, right up the street here. And it's gorgeous. It's fantastic, but it's got fifty nine pickups. Mm. I think that need they need to be. What do they call it? They remagnetize them. Yeah. Yeah. They need to like bring them up to you know.
0: Yeah, they've just lost all the oomph, which is yeah, very common oomph. with yeah. pickups. Yeah. 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 So
1: I I need to give it some oomph back into it. Um, I just got a uh, '66 Precision Maple neck. Mm. The '59 uh, is Rosewood. It's slab Rosewood. It's the uh, the first generation, and that neck is like a jazz
2: neck. Yeah.
1: They, because they hadn't really built the jazz yet. Jazz came out in 61, 62, 61. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was kind of like, okay, we're going to take this neck and make this a jazz. And then we're going to make bigger, wider necks for the precision. That's mm-hmm. when we started making that the wider precision necks. You yeah. Know? And um, I also have a Marcus Miller. Oh, see that? Fender I, Marcus Miller or the uh, Marcus F- Miller. Oh, the Grand. no, no, Fender, Fender Marcus Miller.
0: See, that was okay. incredible. As so, a matter of
1: fact, I got the last one to leave the factory. Four string? Four string. Mm-hmm. And the, the four strings were made in Japan and later in Mexico also. There's a Mexican version of it. But the five strings were made in Corona mm-hmm. down here. And um, it was the last one because I. I, w- I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is uh, one of the you know execs over fender and I asked him do you, is, do you guys have any Marcus Miller's left in your you know in the factory you know in the warehouse and he goes, let me let me check So he actually he went next door and to the guy who built the pickups, the electronics and he says, do we have any Marcus Miller in you know in the warehouse and he says, oh well hold on let me let me check So he goes to the corner of his room and he goes through a pile. Of, of basses and guitars and he pulls it out and he goes oh we got this one now this one happened to be the ba- the bass that they used as a prototype sent to Mexico to build the Mexican made uh, Marcos Miller basses so the company used it for that Yeah. so once it came back to, to Corona they just put it on the corner and it was there for like over 20 years so by the time that I got it It was the last Marcus Miller to leave the factory.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that's interesting because I have a few friends that have the Marcus Millers. Not friends. I should call them acquaintances maybe because I don't see them very often. But they sometimes post videos just of playing the most simple, uneventful bass line, pedestrian bass line on their Marcus Millers. And I go, dang, it sounds good. Yeah. Um,
1: It's a glassy tone to it. Yeah. And what it is is that it's a... um, What's the name of, uh, because the, the the history of the Marcus Miller original Fender, is a, he took it to Sadowski, and Sadowski installed a preamp on his base and built, like, it's kind of like a Frankenstein. It's got, mm-hmm. like, the original uh, pickguard and then extensions, kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, to make it look almost like a Rickenbacker,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, where you have the knobs. Yep. And then there's a little cavity, like a square section. And this three piece, it's a three-piece pickguard. Mm-hmm. And that's where the the, uh, the battery goes in front. Uh, the Mexican version is all one-piece mm. pickguard, but it's shaped like the Rickenbacker, you know, like the Marcus Miller uh, pickguard.
0: I was on yeah. eBay two days ago, literally 48 hours ago, looking at a, Corona-made Marcus Miller five-string. Five-string, yeah. And it was quite a bit of money. How I, much? And I'm still thinking about
1: 2800 $2,800? $2, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty standard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Norman has, usually has them. You just go there and yeah. play
0: them. You know? Yeah. It's just, I, like I said, I've played so much rock since I moved to mm. L.A. that I actually, I sold off some of the five-strings I used every day in Nashville. Because I played five-string almost all the time. Yeah. Day. And, uh. Yeah. And now I find myself being a little short on my five arsenal, and I'm looking at the Marcus. Is that
1: because a lot of songs
0: are written in the key of D? So There's a lot of... I When I played for uh, country singers, male country singers, um, and did, you know, when I did a few stadium tours where we were on one of the opening acts, and playing these huge places, and I was trying to figure out... And the, a lot of these guys have a way deeper voice than I do. I don't have a very deep voice at all, so that's not hard, but... Mm-hmm. A lot of songs were in D-flat, much like a lot of rock bands will have their four strings a half-step down, and then they'll tune down a whole step on yeah the yeah. D-string, so it becomes yes. D-flat, you know?
1: D-flat uh, tuning, yeah, yeah. So uh, a, lot, yeah.
0: a lot of the country male country singers had a lot of songs in, in, in D-flat. So uh, even for female pop country, uh, five-string is good, but for the, male, for the guys that sang low and had two guitars in their band, because, you know, a lot of country acts have two rock guitar players in their band nowadays. But the singer sings real low instead of singing real high like the rock singers. So I'm like, I got two guys playing PRSs or humbucker guitars. I got one guy singing low. The only way I can get under all this, because I can't let like, get louder than them. I can only get under them. So the only way for me to do that is stay on the low B all night. Mm-hmm. Plus, the rec- you know, obviously... Mm-hmm. A lot of touring work I do, I, have to, I sort of cop whatever somebody played on the record. But I find that, yeah, um, in Nashville, the five-string was 90% of what I played. But a lot of guys in Nashville, of course, visually thinks Nashville uh, five-strings are still cheesy. So a lot of guys are doing the B through D on the four-string. Yes, uh, which I don't have a four-string setup like that. I should, but but yeah, I, I sold off too many five-strings, and mm. now I, I, I'm five-string deficient. And all my friends in Nashville would never believe that about me because I was only known as a five-string yeah. guy back there. So.
1: Yeah, my to-go five-string is actually a sin- signature model that I was working with, Fender. Yeah. And it's a five-string Fender, and, and it's, it's RS-001 in oh my man. headstock, and Mark Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Built it by hand, you know. Went over to the factory in Corona, and we spend the afternoon. and And you know, he just took a plank. It's, he asked me pick one, and I pick one, and he started whittling away. And he would give me hand me the uh, the neck and says, "How does it feel?" And I say, "Well, a little bit off here, a little bit off there." And you, you know, the way it was sanded was they have like this barrel, a barrel of sand, and just stick it in like that. You know, go up and down like the churning butter. You know, like that, and just stick it out and sand yeah. sanded smooth. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And we went to all of the original, uh, uh, what is it, the uh, the curve, the curve tools to create the pick guard, mm-hmm. and all the the original ones that Leo bought back in the fifties. Yeah. You know, and that's and we and we built a uh, a precision uh, pick guard. On a jazz body with jazz pickups, and it sounds it sound. it just sounds amazing. So
0: you have a super, very well made custom shop Fender that was yes. all made to your liking. Yes, that never became a production model. That's right. So That must be a special instrument for you. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm curating it until the day I die.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's really amazing. If you, uh, if it's not full of trade secrets. If you wouldn't mind, text me a picture of that base. Oh, sure, and I'll put it out on the social media with this yeah, episode. Yeah, No,
1: it's it, not. A, it's not a trade secret. Yeah, because yeah. that,
0: that's something that doesn't exist mm-hmm. on Google, that doesn't exist, you know, anywhere else. That could be fun for people. Or
1: Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you know, and I've been acquiring more bases lately because you know, it's it's like I, I get projects and I go, oh man, this base that I have in my head. Like 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 a Gibson Thunderbird. Somebody mm-hmm. sent me a track from Nashville, mm-hmm. and I go, and I tried all these different basses and the one that fit Thunderbird, Gibson. I'm going mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going with this because I never get to use it, mm-hmm. you know. And then and then we did a video, and I played that Gibson, you know, on, on the video. I did that. I just got a Rickenbacker. Oh yeah, and you know, there's a certain sound to a Ricky, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and a Relic. Hoffner the 60th there's the 63 version which is the second McCartney one mm-hmm. the first one is the cavern mm-hmm. the one where yep. the uh, with two pickups are close to each other on on, on the neck mm-hmm. and then the uh, the 63 and this is relict and a friend of mine locally he's got a collection of them and I went through all all different models and I found that that's the one that sounded like the sound that's been in my head oh. since I first heard the
0: Beatles. That's the best feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. It,
1: yeah, because the other ones sound a little bit modern. Uh, uh, once you get into the 64, 65, they have binding on the neck, and that affected the tone. Mm-hmm. And this one, it sounds exactly like on those Beatle records. Yeah, so I really recommend everybody. To get a Hofner bass because it's no other bass sounds like it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have any Hofners?
0: I have, believe it or not, it's an Epiphone knockoff of Hofner. Oh, Hoffner. really? Yeah. Uh, and it's a very inexpensive bass. A friend mm. gave it to me. A guitar mm. tech on the last tour I was on in Nashville gave it to me. He said, mm. I, "I never played it. It's at home," and I got hired by this actor here in LA. Who's on the Big Bang Theory, and he does, for fun, on the side, he does like a jazz, mm. old school jazz country act, mm. where him and a female, instead of singing love songs, they get on stage and sing about how much they hate each other. <laughs> but it's really cool, vintage, like kind yeah. of like rockabilly jazz yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. And I got hired for it. The band leader was like, you have an upright, like you play upright. I'm like, well, not really. I have on TV, but it has to be a slow song, and you have to give me a week's warning. <laughs> right? Yeah. So anyway, so I said, how about this? I have this little hollow body cheap bass that I, the way I play it, I think I can do the job. And if if the artist is cool with it, he doesn't need the look of the upright. So I'm like, I call the artist, it's fine, come to rehearsal. And I play this Epiphone, and people just turned around. They even stopped the song, and they go, that sound is amazing. And, and uh, you know. I, you know, my my hands are good, but they're not miraculous. You know, mm-hmm. and I just said, "Hey, that's this bass."
1: Yeah. Have you watched uh, the uh, the country music? The Ken Burns, it's 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 the performance from the Ryman. You know, Ken Burns yeah. did the country music documentary, yes. and then they did a, a performance. Yeah. And um, uh, what's her name? She did uh, uh, Fever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What's her name? Uh, I forgot. Well, a, a young country artist. She sang it and the bass player, mm-hmm. it was just like her voice mm-hmm. and, and this guy playing. It's a Hofner, mm-hmm. and he's playing the bass and it's the most magnificent sound. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a club model.
0: The club is amazing.
1: It's Yeah, it just sounded like, and this guy was doing like using the thumbs, you know, yeah. just like, oh man, what a, how oh beautiful.
0: Bon Jovi did a big unplugged special maybe 10, 15 years ago and Huey, uh, Huey played uh, the club the mm-hmm. Club Hoffner on it, and it's just it sounds like gold yeah it does amazing. it
1: does, but I've got to tell you this uh this this Hoffner that I have the uh the five what is it called the five thousand and one mm-hmm. model the sixty three yep I wouldn't trade that for anything, just
0: fantastic I, ha- I have a funny story. The very first guest on this podcast mm-hmm. is my friend who plays for Jimmy Buffett, who's mm-hmm. you know one of the top selling arena acts in America every year, even yeah. though he doesn't make records much anymore and he had a sixty-three Hoffner.
1: Mm. Original sixty-three.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, j- and Jimmy, my base my b- friend's name is Jim, but his boss, Jimmy, mm. would mess around with it in the studio and just said, you know, I oh I, I love this bass, you know. He doesn't play bass really, but so I told my friend, I said, Hey, listen, this guy's, you know, he's employed you for twenty-three years. He's bought your house and everything else. Give him your bass. Just give your boss your base, make him happy, and so I went on 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 um, Craigslist in Tennessee and found him another 63 for not uh, a hell of a lot of money. Really? Yeah. Huh. So uh, he gave his his 63 to Jimmy Buffett Aww. and and uh, to his boss. Yeah. Because his boss was just in love with it, yeah. and he he said, "My boss turns into a little kid when he sits and oh. noodles with it." I'm like, "Well, then that's a." Because Jimmy Buffett has more money than God. Yeah. He can buy one, but yeah. he likes your bass. Give
1: him your bass. Yeah, there's something to be said that little kid feeling playing a Hoffner.
0: Yeah.
1: I get it every time I play it.
0: Yeah.
1: As a matter of fact, sometimes it gets in the way of my playing. <laughs> because I'm playing like a little kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, and then I look at it in awe because see, you have to treat a Hoffner. Completely different than any other
0: bass. It requires a different touch, doesn't it? It
1: does. Yeah. It does. It's it's a whole different mindset, and just the the fact that McCartney has played and and created these iconic bass lines on this thing that should have been a ukulele, basically, yeah. It's so unique. You know, the wo- Hofner only sounds like a Hofner. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it just brings out certain qualities out of you, mm-hmm. you know, that no other instrument does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my little Epiphone doesn't sound just like a Hofner, but it, it, it gives me a similar feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love more, more than anything how even it is. You know, mm-hmm. I, I go up high on the neck. Nobody feels yes. like the bass player's gone because it's still yeah. fat sounding. Yeah. I go down low. Yeah. And it still has enough definition to where yeah. it doesn't get too muddy and and uh it does bring out a playful side of me yeah. and, and pardon me everyone, but I'm not the biggest Beatles fan on earth. Mm-hmm. But that bass tone gets mm-hmm. me giddy as well. Oh well, yeah.
1: Yeah. And one thing that I that I really discover, even though I grew up with what's known today as classic rock, mm-hmm. I'm playing it, you know, I'm in a classic rock band. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I discover is the range of, of the bass. I find myself, just in order to duplicate correctly what is being played on the original records, not going below the A um, A on, on the fourth string. If you go down to G, you're pushing it. <laughs> Open E's, rarely. Yep. That's how it was played. If you listen mm-hmm. to classic rock records, it's all in the upper. Mm-hmm. Range of the bass, not above the 12th fret, but kind of like in between, right here Three, and, five this, and, and, 12, yeah, and yeah, in this area, right yeah. here. Which, if actually, if you play a Hofner open E, is the equivalent of this note here. You know, which is the uh, seventh fret, eight string E, mm-hmm. right here. This is it. It just has that. It, it's not just a cut. It's a a certain. Timber, we're mm-hmm. talking about the timber that mm-hmm. just sits right there. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I when I listen to McCartney records and he has gone towards the the uh the Rickenbacker, the sound is too big on the bass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially when he went into like wings and his solo records, it's just the bass is too uh, too dominant. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear his voice. I also want to hear the vase, but there was something about the uh, the uh, the Hofner that it was such a compliment to McCartney's voice yeah. that they did not clash.
0: Yeah, it, it's not. It doesn't have a huge footprint, mm-hmm. and and it's interesting because a lot of his patterns are, uh, you know, they're pop hooks, which is yes. what's so great about McCartney's playing. And but they Jam- drive, and Jamerson's playing. Is yeah. they both wrote, uh, the bass would have a hook. Yes. Much like the lead vocal has a hook, the yeah. bass would have a hook. Yeah, and that's what those Hofners yeah. are so great at. You can play that hook line yeah. up high, and it doesn't sound like you're playing a solo, mm-hmm. right?
1: I was listening to the isolated tracks of uh, "Hey Bulldog."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's not, it's it's a song that people just don't even think about when they think about the Beatles. Yeah. But it's got one of the most unique elements in it. You know, it's got a blues riff. You don't hear that in a Beatles song. You know. Yeah. And if you're listening to the isolated bass track, clearly sounds like that riff. That was recorded with a different bass than the verses. You know, I mean, it's complete, It's it's like night and day, tone wise. You know, I don't know if they did it li- deliberately or was something like uh, it happened by accident. Yeah, but it happens every time that riff comes in. It the bass sounds co- It's 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 a different bass. Wow. You know, and from what I hear, you know, because, you know, just like you, you know, we, we like to hear an- anecdotes, how things were recorded. It was basically they, McCartney grabbed anything that was handy and he used that t- to play, you know, to write with and, and record it.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, because looking for the ultimate tone wasn't the goal. The goal was to make sure that the technical part of recording didn't get in the way of the speed of the creative thought. Yes. That were happening. Yes. And that's how Prince made music too. All of his yes. records doesn't sound amazing, but he always grabbed what was there and it's always yeah. on tape straight from his heart and his head. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. the sonics weren't as important yeah. as the speed of inspiration, yeah. which that's how geniuses work.
1: When I first got to Los Angeles in the mid-70s, I used to hang around the, uh, the record plant, you know, mm. doing demos and whatever, you know, with Choir Riot and so on. And there will be bands that will come in and the first three days... Was to get a snare sound.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. These. Yes. Yeah.
1: A freaking snare sound. Three yeah.
0: days. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah. We ha- that's that was the the process back then. You mm-hmm. know, uh, that was kind of like the beginning of bands not recording at the same time. You know, they would just come in, do a scratch, everything, and just do the uh, the drums, mm-hmm. because more outboard gear was becoming available. But dating half enough gear for the whole band to use. So they would put all the gear, all the outboard gear, you know, compressors and limiters and the AMS and whatever, on the drums first. And no matter how good your track was that you just laid down, now you got to do it again. Without the drummer. <laughs> you know, all by yourself. Okay. So, you know, that would take extra time.
0: I mean, you have, you have the you have the Mutt Lang stories, mm-hmm. you know, of oh. how he records. Do you, do you know Mutt? Do you know any of the I guys
1: in Def Leppard?
0: No, I, I know the guys that worked with Mutt for years with Shania Twain's yeah. big world tours. Yeah. And I've met the man and talked to him for a while. Yeah backstage yeah. at a Shania show. And and uh but I don't know any of the Def, guy, mm. Def Leppard guys in person. Yeah. But but my friends told me we'd be rehearsing Man I Feel Like a Woman, the Shania Twain song. We have the upbeats, he goes da I da 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 which is basically an ACDC thing t- and a Def Leppard thing too. Mm. It's the two strings and you're playing with two fingers. Mm. That's not, not a pick. Mm. And they said he, he'd he s- have us do them for hours and he would turn his back and maybe get a snack. And my fingers would get so tired, my friend said, that I'd switch to two other fingers for a little while to practice his riff. And he would not look at me. He goes, you switched fingers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stories yeah. like that all yeah. day long. I
1: mean, And this is a pretty common... Uh, knowledge that and that how the Def Leppard recording process was back in, you know, when they were working with Mud Lang, and it was basically uh, they would go into a jingle studio somewhere in Europe, usually Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. and uh, they would record guitar tracks string by string.
0: Yep. I've heard. To make a chord.
1: To make the chord. (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean (laughs) there's so many musicians that are inspiration driven that can't work like that but there's no wrong way because no, Munch made, no of course Much made some of the greatest records ever. Absolutely ever. Yes, and then some of my favorite records mm. ever were recorded in a few days. You go back and you listen to to bring it back to your career. You uh, you know the uh, the uh, Dio that you joined their first record. Yeah, uh, Sound City up here, and that was a that was a quickie. The first police record uh, is a quickie.
1: Metal Metal uh, Metal Health. Yeah, Metal Health was Cumberland field the Noise one one. One take, drum track. Yep. Then I, I came back later on when I officially joined the band and I, I did the, the, the bass on it. And this is a cover of a song I had never heard in my whole life.
0: Slade, right?
1: Yeah, Slade. Yeah. And it's not like nowadays you go on YouTube and listen to whatever song. You know, like, okay, uh, okay, well, I'm going to play what I think the song
0: needs or fits
1: and that and that's what I played on it yeah. you know and I just did in one take and out of there you know
0: yeah there there's 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 just no wrong way there's the spontaneous record of the chemistry in r- the room and make history and then there's the let's record string by string for 2 weeks to make 17 seconds of an intro <laughs> and make history too you know
1: yeah but i think it's it's again you know we were talking about what what is music music is language music is communication Music is all about being in a room and talking to each other, yeah. a, c- a conversation, you know, and, and you can't really, truly have that unless everybody is present playing at the same time and yeah. and enjoying themselves. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the chemistry between people that you can hear on the record is, is something that, yeah. you know, you know, old old Hendrix records and stuff like that, when, when people are just feeding off each other. Yeah. That, that stuff is... It's magic. It, yeah, it is magic. Yeah, it is magic. And, and you know, the one. Th- uh, there's many things I... My 18 years I just spent in Nashville, there's many mm-hmm. things I'm thankful for, but I was never one of the big studio cats because I always preferred live music. I never mm-hmm. wanted to get out of bed in the morning, go to the studio, go home and do that every day. That was never my thing. But the few sessions I did, it's always six guys in a room.
1: What was the most magical
0: session you ever did in the studio? Uh, uh, Well, this requires me sort of promoting an artist who's not very well known, but it's an artist named Dan Kolauer. He is basically true Americana. Take everything great about American rock like Mellencamp, Springsteen. It sounds like it's from the cornfield, but it's rock. It's not country. Mm -hmm. Uh, his name is dan kolauer and his sessions i did with a drummer that normally works for robin ford and people like that Mm -hmm. and and a guitar player and we're all middle-aged guys but we all came in and we're all sidemen but Mm -hmm. we all came in and we made a record uh like we were kids in a band where we would feed off each other and Mm -hmm. we'd play a song once or twice and come up with a quick arrangement and then track on the third take and that's the most magical session I've had because instead mm-hmm. of having six guys that are all professionals just reading charts with three of us professionals mm-hmm. trying to be less professional and more real if you if you so that's been sort of my yeah favorite.
1: You, you, you just mentioned an identity that uh and, and I'm just wondering uh, what does being a sideman mean to you versus being a band member
0: well the sideman thing, and this goes for recording session more than anything. In Nashville, we record in three-hour blocks. Ten to one, two to five, mm-hmm. sometimes a six to nine. Yeah. And those three-hour blocks, depending on if it's a big major label project or if it's a custom record, you know, by some unsigned artist who signed up a few or saved up a few thousand dollars to, to record with real musicians, mm-hmm. which those projects are, where a lot of my studio work in Nashville. Then you have to get three songs down as far as basic tracks in three hours, all mm-hmm. instruments. That's mm-hmm. a normal working pace of Nashville. Mm-hmm. That and
1: re- do you get in advance uh, m- uh, like, an, uh, like a demo or most sheet
0: music? Or most of the time, not. You, you listen, get nothing in advance. You listen through an acoustic demo in the control room. Everyone listens to the acoustic demo or the artist sitting on this couch playing it while you check the charts to make sure the charts are... Give you a chart. And then we all go, it seemed like the solo was a little short. Let's make that longer, right? Mm -hmm. Just a few quick comments and then you go in and track. Yeah. And obviously, that's conducive to saving money and it's conducive to uh, getting a lot of stuff done and it's conducive to everyone being very focused and delivering quickly. Yeah, of course. But it's also not conducive to real Creativity. Mm -hmm. Because real creativity in that that type of scenario becomes a luxury, sadly. So you lean on what I call sideman skills. Like uh, you'll play a bass track that might not have a bunch of originality to it, but it'll be very solid and safe Mm -hmm. so that there can be other songs recorded that hour. So when I say mm-hmm. that my favorite record I made was with a bunch of professional sidemen who were trying to be band members, mm-hmm. it just means that we stepped out of our roles as cookie cutter delivery. Yes. Interesting. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because I've done records as a band member
2: mm-hmm.
1: in situations like that. Big records. Mm-hmm. Records that turn out to be big.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the lyrics weren't done yet.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah.
1: So you're cutting tracks, not knowing what. What's this guy going to sing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically taking the same approach, and you have spent days in pre-production working on this, right? Yeah. So it's not like you're not you're you're hearing the song, but you again see when when you, as a sideman, when you go in that studio and you hear the guy playing you the song, you know you know where the vocals is going to be and exactly. the holes and everything. You it's there's a song already. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases the song is built from as 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 you as the recording process goes along. Yeah. And Very challenging.
0: Yeah. And the, s- the scenarios you're talking about where you're sort of in the band member boat and there's this great drum tracking. Yeah. You're focusing on the kick drum instead of the lyrics. Yeah. And again, you know, there are probably times I should have been focused more on the kick drum, I admit this willingly, but I'm like you. I, I want to know what the movie's about. Even yeah. though I'm just going to play, if the kick drum's going, dong, 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 one and three, heartbeat, and I'm just going, dong, 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 I still want to know what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the point you made earlier on when we started talking is is I would much rather, I kind of love it when somebody sends me a finished recording go, we want to replace the original bass. can, And they send me this finished thing, harmonies, all the yeah. v- Everything is there. They just want me to fix the bass. Yeah. And, uh, then I feel, oh, this is the best scenario ever because I yeah. can really do the best job because yeah. I know everything. All yeah. the icing on the cake has been placed. Yeah. I've done a few sessions where I track just with a drummer and a rhythm guitar, and there were sections that were downright boring, so I added some stuff. Just a little interest, a little personality, mm. and then when the vocals came on, I'm like, "Well, I sound like I'm overplaying a little bit." Mm. And if I would have heard that vocal when I was tracking, yeah, I would have never put bass notes there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's ups and downs with yeah. that stuff.
1: Yeah, they are, and uh,
0: sometimes you,
1: you know, like in my case, I've 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 do something, and I'm like, you know, I deliver. You know, like we're talking about two tracks: the uh, the dry and the affected track. You know, yeah. I, 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 and also for, if I need a little extra hump on the affected track, I use the bias effects mm-hmm. software. Mm-hmm. I, have you tried that yet?
0: I, I'm using it too. Oh, that's yeah. phenomenal. Yep. phenomenal. 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 Yep. I
1: loved it. I love it. And I mean, it's got everything that I need. If I, if I, if, it, if not, if something is missing from my dry, D, you know, my DI mm-hmm. signal, I can compensate it with the, uh with the software. I just give it to them and say, here. One thing that I always do is reverse the phasing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because they a lot of times the engineer doesn't know how to do that.
0: Yeah, and they pull up the two track and they ruin both. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> they cancel the uh, yeah, the bottom
1: yeah, end. Yeah. And you get it back and you go, oh, no. Yeah. So I, I, I've learned to, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Just, you know, just reverse the phasing on it. So, it, you know, you, you don't have to have that issue in the, during the mix. And it's just, yeah.
0: So you asked me a great question since you're you normally a host, which I can tell. You asked me the fantastic question: which record did I play on where you, where I felt the magic? Yeah, between the players in the room actually translated yeah. onto the ones and the zeros in the yeah. computer. Yeah, which record is that for you, if there is one?
1: That is a great question. Well,
0: it's <laughs> your question. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> uh, oh my God. I I would have to say, you know, I would have to say Metal Health, the album, Thunderbird, that se- that initial session that I did, and I say initial because those that session, we cut everything live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I came back, I was overdubbing. Yes. Like uh like the original bass for Come and the Noise was laid down by Tony Cavazzo. Mm-hmm. And then I came in, and I didn't even listen to what he played. I just played what, you know, what I heard that should be played. And, uh, again, it was like four guys in a small room, maybe half the size of this room, and just recording, you know, playing. People, friends, we're friends, yeah. you know. And it was, again, the joy of uh, making music out, uh, away from, from, you know, Even though it was Quiet Riot. See, when I think of Randy, I think more of Randy as being the guitar player in Ozzy than Mm -hmm. in Quiet Riot. And the reason being is because I spend more time playing with Randy in Ozzy than Mm -hmm. I did in Quiet Riot. In Quiet Riot, I was in the band for about a year and a half, and we just played locally.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, maybe twice a month. With Ozzy, we were on two tours together. You know, playing every day, hanging out, living—you know—touring in the bus. You yeah. know, it was like, you know, you're you're two really, really together. Yeah. You know, so I I, I have more memories of uh, of Randy with uh, with Ozzy than I do with Quiet Riot. So when when I went back to to what became known as Quiet Riot again, um, because we, because the, even th- it was a production deal, the band wasn't was not yet signed to a major label yet. We were doing kind of like a, like a working, w- like, you know, high quality demos that wound up on the record.
0: That's been the case with a lot of big records. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's yeah. how
0: that's how Taylor Swift's first record happened. was mm-hmm. a bunch of friends of mine that were playing demos in mm-hmm. Nashville, yeah. meaning they weren't the A-list session guy. They played on her demos yeah. and her label went in and paid for it to be cut by the A guys, mm-hmm. and it didn't quite have the vibe of the demo. So they yeah. put out the demos on that first record, yeah. which changed all my friends' lives because they went from being the B guys to being the A guys because they were on the demo. Yeah. So it's 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 uh, encouraging when, when the suits mm-hmm. uh, actually hear the vibe of the demo and go, okay, we didn't beat it. Let's keep the demo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. S- so, so speaking of touring, because mm-hmm. uh, I want to make sure people who listen, if they want to catch you live... How many dates do you do with your current band a year, on Uh, average?
1: um, By choice, I'm playing in a band that does flyaways. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a great band, a band that I'm a fan of. uh, It's called The Guess Who. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do about 60 60 shows a year, 60, 65, which...
0: Perfect amount. yeah, Yeah.
1: You know, I get to be home during the week and holidays, you know. And it's great. I mean, at this point in my life, you know, I've done so many of those year and a half on the tour bus mm-hmm. tours. Of course, you know. On 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 the other side, the the financial gains from, which means that it, that you have a hit record, mm-hmm. if you're doing that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Nowadays, we really don't have rock hit records. No. Nope. So if you're on tour for a year and a half with a band, it's it does not equate. The financial gain. I mean, and by that I mean that you tell your, your family, listen, I'm going to be away from home a lot during this year and a half, but we have this financial reward that it's going to be good for us. Mm-hmm. To be away for a year and a half and that, <laughs> and tell your wife, well, you know, I make some money, but nothing like I used to, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not the same. And, you know, and I, I've been doing this for a long time and I really don't need to go on the road for a year and a half on a tour bus. You know, yeah. I'd r- I rather just fly and then come home every weekend. So it's really a blessing, you know, to do that.
0: Yeah, and that seems like a lot of... Uh, the last gig I did this summer, the docking, the same thing, just flying yeah. out on the weekends. And and most Nashville tours, even the big ones, the busy ones, except for maybe the months of July and August, you just leave on the weekends. Yeah, I think, I think Nashville
1: week. started that yeah. way back in the day.
0: Yeah, yeah. the yeah. weekend warrior is not a derogatory term as you being a bar band guy in Nashville. It just means you work with an artist, which Kenny Chesney and Luke Bryan, the biggest country artists Mm -hmm. that play the biggest football stadiums, they only work Thursday through Sunday, sometimes Thursday through Saturday. Yeah. So uh, if you have a family, if you have a session career, you don't have to give any of that up to play on the biggest tours. Oh, yeah. And I call them tours, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's definitely a thing. I want to ask before we finish, Mm. I want to ask, and this has nothing to do with bass and everything to do with spirituality and your mm-hmm. overall attitude. But uh, I watched that documentary uh, that came out, what, two years ago about uh, Sidemen and Sidemen? Oh, hi-
1: Hired Gun. Hired Gun. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, the bass player from Pink's band, Eva Gardner. Oh, is Eva, in that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Eva's been on this podcast mm-hmm. and is just one of the coolest people. And She's awesome. I she love She really her. is awesome. What an yeah. incredible human she is. She mentioned in her podcast that mm-hmm. in that movie, a lot of these side guys had been on higher-level gigs, but they were still bitter that they had been mistreated somehow. Or She said, it seemed like us guys, me and the pink guys, were the only ones in that documentary mm-hmm. who were like, yeah, our boss is the coolest person on earth, and we love our jobs. Mm-hmm. But I noticed when I watched it that tho- those guys were very happy, but mm-hmm. the other guys, there was, there was just a little bit of complaining. But then mm-hmm. your segment came up, and you were like, Mm -hmm. breath of fresh air and positivity you just seemed genuinely thankful for the Mm -hmm. life you've had and surely you've had drama on tours or been mistreated or any of those things that other people complain about but you you just you didn't carry any of that in that documentary and even sitting here with you now Mm. uh, you (laughs) have an air you laugh a lot and and you seem Mm -hmm. to just be very happy do you think because I know a lot of younger musicians that are on their first tour, they're in a van, they're fighting, they might not sleep well at night, they're eating (laughs) shit food, and they might find reasons to complain. Do you have any sort of motivational thing how you've approached staying so happy in your career and so thankful for what you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a multiple-level question for me to answer, because if I don't answer one side of it, I, I feel like I've been unfair, I'm not being honest, uh, to me, it all starts with spirituality. Uh, it's, 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 it's a blessing to be able to do this, you know and, and, and the older I get, the more I do this. you know, because when I was younger, I was a bit uh, unfocused. I, I was a professional musician. But I spent so much time doing basically the same thing over and over again. You know, you get up, you know, you get off the stage, you go in the tour bus, wake up in in the next town, go to the record store to sign, do autograph signing, take a shower, do sound check, do the gig, play the same set, right? Uh, It was not very creative, which is one of the things, the reasons why, uh, why Randy wanted to leave Ozzy. Because he didn't want to spend the rest of his life doing that. He wanted to go back, actually, to get his master's in music. And I've always been surrounded by people in the 70s locally. Like Randy was very inspirational to me. And kind of like he personified what a true musician was early on. Even before he he started playing with Ozzy. Because he was a teacher. Right down the street here in you know, in in North Hollywood, and I always saw Randy as a teacher. That became very successful. <laughs> Wonderful, <laughs> you know. That became Randy Rhodes, but he was a teacher before he was anything else. You know, before he was a <clears throat> a performer, he was he was <laughs> teaching already. Before he was a re- a recording artist, he was teaching. A composer, he was teaching. You know, and if you look at any photo of Randy Rhodes, take a look at it. And you're going to see clearly what he's playing. When he was on stage, he used to, like, in the front row were the guitar players. And it would be like he's giving them a lesson. This is how you play the song. Mm-hmm. It was very clear. He wasn't one of those guys that would, like, turn around and do riffs and, you know, do all that. He was, like, very if you look at him, he's he's just very articulate in his playing. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you can clearly see everything. Everything yeah. that was he was playing, yeah. you know. And uh, so I, I had some great references. Also, my, my spirituality, you know, finding peace with God when I was a uh, destitute, basically, you know. But that was all right, you know. I, finding peace that if I was meant to do this, Great, thank you. And, but if it wasn't, that's all right. I'm you know, find your relationship. Finding my relationship with God, you know, that was at the center of everything. Um uh, great references, like I mentioned, Randy, and the biggest ups and downs I ever had career wise was actually in my own band. See, one of the things that the documentary People might miss when they watch it was that I would say the majority of the musicians who started out as sidemen became successful artists, either as solo artists or band members. Mm -hmm. Just about every one of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and including myself. You know, I mean, you might have somebody like Liberty DeVito complaining about the way he was treated by Billy Joel, but. He did not move on past what he did with Billy Joel, you know. Whereas in my case, I have no complaints about what uh, you know what being with Ozzy. Only reason why I left Ozzy was because Randy died, and it was devastating to go on stage without him being there. Mm-hmm. So, so I went from leaving one of the biggest bands in the world to the complete unknown, which was quite a riot, you know. Yeah. But I was happy. Again, yeah you know, making music with with my friends, you know, yeah, and but originally in that band, that's where I had the biggest ups and downs in my career, mm-hmm. you know, of course, you know, Frankie Benali was and still is my best friend before choir riot and beyond choir riot, you know, and today you know he he's my brother, you know, but uh but there were c- certain things that might not be directly related to Frankie but there were certain things going on within the band that made me leave the band again I know the mm. big band because I needed to find joy mm. see if without joy in you're playing you you you're, I'm miserable I can't be in a miserable playing situation you know yeah. White snake was a wonderful situation and I got to tell you at the time that that band was formed we were it, it was a band mm-hmm. you know we had a certain uh, arrangement that we were partners mm-hmm. in the group so it wasn't really we were never considered sight men from from the very beginning you know and then it became huge.
0: That's good to hear, because I think a lot of... Uh, without you disclosing details about that, I think a lot of people think Coverdale is higher sidemen, like a solo act. And it's n- it's good to hear that you guys had a sort of a band arrangement. yes. Yeah.
1: Then, then, yeah. then. That, that, I mean, that's my experience. Mm-hmm. That, that, I can only speak from experience. Yeah. Dio, Ronnie was phenomenal. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, it was... I mean, but he did not... Only treat the band great. He treated the crew great too. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it, everything. It was like the Gandalf.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <It was> like <laughs> you know, you always wanted to hang out with Ronnie. And if Ronnie said, "Listen, I'm going on tour," you, whatever you were doing, you drop it and you go on tour with with, with, with Ronnie. You yeah, know, he was with br-
0: Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it was <laughs> right. a priority. It was it was kind of like going on you know <laughs> going on the road with. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know the guys, you know. Yeah, it was great on a journey, basically, and uh, and also at that time I was I was playing with Blue Oyster Colt mm-hmm. and that was great too. And now I'm playing with the Guess too and that's another wonderful situation, you know. And uh, so I I am very grateful. I mean, what's there not to be grateful about, you
0: exactly. know? And
1: I, and I play more nowadays than I've than I've ever done. You know, I got more time to play. Yeah, and that's
0: you know when you have the luxury of playing what you want mm-hmm. when you want to when you want to yeah what an incredible yeah. life it you is know? it is you know it, it's and to people who aren't musicians you know I, I'm sure there's a lot of 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 guys listen to this who play bass as a hobby mm-hmm. uh, and have and and you know are accountants or. I ran into a doctor the other night after a gig. He, I think he was, you know, a surgeon of some kind, and he just came up and talked to me about bass playing. Says that's my favorite hobby. That's what I do when I don't work at the hospital, you know. And anyone like that who's listening, being a professional in-demand bass player or instrumentalist, mm. there's a certain amount of playing music when you don't want to play music. Anything can become a job if you're not careful. I always say that to people, which is why sometimes you need to quit very nice scenarios mm-hmm. like you you said you you quit Aussie and, y- mm-hmm. and you quit Quiet Riot mm-hmm. when they were both successful and uh, I get asked privately not on this podcast normally but about why I left Nashville where I had so mm-hmm. many good things going on and and it's all in search of musical joy mm-hmm. and yeah. musical joy and musical success are very different things Yes. And when you do music all the time, you have to be extra careful, right? But joy leads to success usually, because yeah. people can tell success and they're drawn doesn't to it.
1: Generally, lead to joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Always yeah. find the joy. You know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's uh, that's all the self help uh, that you guys get on the Lowdown Society podcast today. Yeah, but <laughs> I, it's, I, it's
1: it's a reality. It's not even yeah. you know we're not trying to be Tony Robbins here, which is nothing wrong because I'm I'm a fan. Yeah. But we're just being, we're just being as direct as possible. Yeah. You know, this is, this is how we, this is how we live. Yeah. You know, this is how every decision that we make is based on, on, on answering those check marks. Is, is, is this, is whether it's tracking doing the mail order tracking or or doing the going on tour with somebody? Is this gonna give us joy? Is this gonna also is this gonna be credibility credible for our career? Because you can't make any bad moves, you know. Even though once in a while I'll get on social media some diehard metal guys going, "What are you doing playing with a classic rock band?" Well, I grew up. I'm a fan of the band. And, you know, I grew up with this music. I'm not just a heavy metal musician. I am a musician.
0: You the know, music is music. Imagine playing "Come On Feel the Noise" on acoustic guitar without a distortion pedal. Then it's a great pop song.
1: Yes, i are way
0: too hung up on genre. genre I've sometimes heard sometimes it's just production.
1: I've heard Hall do a version of it. Oasis do a version of it. It's 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 a great song. Yeah. Period. Written by Slade. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. I got this room for us to record in, and they haven't kicked us out, which is nice, because we're about <laughs> half hour over time. But that's just because we had fun. So yeah. thanks so much for sharing. Thank uh, you, Victor. Thank you. stuff with Thank all the you. listeners. Appreciate Thank it,
1: brother. And, uh, to all your listeners, uh, keep listening to your podcast. It's really awesome.
0: Thanks, man. Appreciate you it. You
1: really had a great time. Yeah, you know, I, re- I rarely do podcasts no, because I, I do my own, and yeah. that takes up time.
0: You're successful enough as a bass player where I think a lot of people ask you about the bands you've been in and, and mm-hmm. about rock star stuff. But I'm interested in why does your signature model have 24 frets? Yeah. <laughs> you know it's, it's nice for people to really hear you talk about mm-hmm. bass more than maybe some of the other podcasts and yeah. Hired Gun. Because mm-hmm. you know, the minute you start nerding out over bass stuff, you narrowed down your audience very yeah, much. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate you being able to, to get nerdy with us on that stuff. I
1: love to be nerdy because I, 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 I'm i an old nerd. <laughs> I've been a nerd longer than the word nerd exists.
0: <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. All right, brother. Okay, Talk you. soon. Thank Bye. You. Thank you guys so much for hanging in for the longest interview by far in the Lowdown Society podcast histories. If you guys are loving the podcast, please let your friends know, regardless of what instrument they play. Uh, We're still a small podcast with a few hundred bass players listening to every episode, which I'm very thankful for. But with guys like Rudy Sarzo sharing their wisdom, I'm sure a lot more people would find it interesting. So I really appreciate you guys' help in spreading the word. I do this for fun and I don't do it for profit. So it's all a matter of getting the good word out and uh, helping the free knowledge get spread to as many bass players and musicians as possible. The next episode will be quite the different genre uh, bass playing from the one we just listened to. And I hope you guys are in for that ride as well. So in the meantime, keep it funky, keep it low, and I'll see you right back here of the Lowdown Society.